folks at long last battery week is here it is time to get into batteries way into batteries over the next few posts i'm going to cover how lithium ion batteries work and the different chemistries that are competing for market share but i thought i would start off with a post about why i am doing this why batteries are important and why it's worth understanding the variety and competition within the space. Headline 1. Lithium-ion batteries are crucial to decarbonization in two important sectors. We know that the fastest, cheapest way to decarbonize, especially over the next 10 years, is clean electrification. Shifting the grid to carbon-free sources and shifting other sectors and energy services onto the grid. Lithium-ion batteries are accelerating clean electrification in the two biggest emitting sectors of the U.S. economy, transportation and electricity. Each is between a quarter and a third of U.S. emissions. First, lithium-ion batteries are colonizing the EV market and enabling ever higher performance and range. The global EV market is on the front end of explosive growth. Researchers at Deloitte expect growth to accelerate through 2030, as Bloomberg NEF analysts show in their Electric Vehicle Outlook 2030. It's not just passenger EVs either. The fastest growing EV segment will be buses, followed by scooters. The global market for EV batteries alone is expected to hit almost a trillion dollars by 2030. Sustaining that growth is going to require lots and lots of new batteries. The more energy-dense, cheap, and safe lithium-ion batteries can get, the faster the electrification of transportation will happen. Second, lithium-ion batteries are being used for both distributed building-level energy storage and for large grid-scale storage installations. As the grid shifts from firm, dispatchable sources of energy, like coal and gas, to variable, weather-dependent sources, like sun and wind, it will need more storage to balance things out and stay stable. Batteries can help at the grid level, they can even serve as transmission assets, and they can serve local resilience at the building and community level. Overall, the research firm Wood McKinsey expects the global storage market to grow at an average of 31% a year over the coming decade, reaching 741 gigawatt hours of cumulative capacity by 2030. The more energy-dense, cheap, and safe lithium-ion batteries can get, the faster storage will be infused throughout the grid, and the more renewable energy the grid will be able to integrate. Altogether, here's what the Department of Energy projects for the global energy storage market through 2030. Total capacity, including transportation and stationary sources, will reach 2,500 gigawatt hours by 2030. As this graph shows, the vast bulk of the demand for batteries is going to come from transportation, meaning EVs of various kinds. Whatever is used for EVs is probably going to end up getting so cheap, just from scale, that it dominates energy storage as well. There's one other cool aspect of batteries that gets too little attention. Storing substantial amounts of electricity for cheap is a relatively new thing in human affairs. We are only just now beginning to explore what can be done with it. 
What's happened in the relatively short history of lithium-ion batteries is that as they get cheaper and more powerful, we find new uses for them. Headline 2. Lithium-ion batteries can do more and more stuff. There's a reason why, in 2019, the three chemists behind the initial development of lithium-ion technology won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Lithium-ion batteries boast incredibly high energy density and specific energy, which is to say, they cram lots of oomph into a small, lightweight package, and they are capable of cycling many more times than their predecessors. The first lithium-ion batteries commercially introduced in the early 1990s were expensive, but found a market foothold in small electronic devices, phones, laptops, camcorders, where energy density is at a premium. They have since all but completely taken over the consumer electronics market. As manufacturing scale grew, prices fell and more uses opened up. Power tools, lawnmowers, scooters. Scale grew more, prices fell more, and lithium-ion batteries began displacing other chemistries as the top choice for EVs. Especially in recent years, the growth and anticipated growth in the EV market has driven an enormous surge of public and private investment to lithium-ion batteries, with dramatic effects on prices. According to recent research by BNEF, quote, lithium-ion battery pack prices, which were above $1,100 per kilowatt hour in 2010, have fallen 89% in real terms to $137 per kilowatt hour in 2020. By 2023, average prices will be close to $100 per kilowatt hour, unquote. It wasn't that long ago that most experts agreed $100 per kilowatt hour was an impossible target. And so the cycle continues. Prices fall and more new uses open up. Big trucks, buses, airplanes, data centers, distributed energy storage, and large-scale grid storage. From BNEF, quote, BNEF's analysis suggests that cheaper batteries can be used in more and more applications. These include energy shifting, moving in time the dispatch of electricity to the grid, often from times of excess solar and wind generation. Peaking in the bulk power system to deal with demand spikes, as well as for customers looking to save on their energy bills by buying electricity at cheap hours and using it later. Unquote. Experts generally agree that lithium-ion batteries are going to hit limits, even if it's just the base price of raw materials, before they become economical for long-duration grid storage. They are being installed for four to six hour storage, sometimes eight hour, and may someday even aspire to 12 hour, but beyond that, the weekly or even seasonal storage a renewables-based grid will need, some other technology or technologies will have to step in. I will likely do a separate post on long duration storage. Nonetheless, Continued scaling will ensure that lithium-ion batteries get even cheaper. Some analysts believe that with foreseeable improvements in lithium-ion battery chemistry, 
prices could hit $40 or even $30 per kilowatt hour in coming decades. We simply don't know yet what can be done with storage that cheap. To take one example, if energy storage gets cheap enough to become an economically trivial addition to building constructions or renovations, it will eventually be ubiquitous at the local level. And the benefits of ubiquitous networked local energy are, well, hard to predict. We know that it would protect vulnerable populations through blackouts like those in Texas or California over the last year, but it could do much more. Cheap batteries could open up uses we haven't even envisioned yet. What sorts of urban mobility vehicles, drones, planes, or research outposts could we power? What kinds of ships or trains could we electrify? How could increasingly cheap, ubiquitous storage be coupled with increasingly cheap, ubiquitous solar energy? We don't know yet but we're going to see some cool shit over the next few years. Batteries have the potential to change our ordinary lived experience in myriad ways. It's worth the time to understand what's driving their development and where they might go. So here's the question that is driving battery week. Are lithium ion batteries going to be to energy storage what solar PV panels are to solar electricity? By way of concluding, let me briefly explain what I mean by that. Headline 3. Solar panels got so cheap, so fast, they swamped all competitors. By solar panels, I'm referring to the standard kind. Boring old crystalline silicon photovoltaic panels. The kind you see on roofs these days, which I will henceforth just call PV. Thanks to key early U.S. research and development, German feed-in tariffs, which subsidized homeowners to put panels on their roofs, and a massive Chinese manufacturing boom, PV has received an enormous extended push in the last several decades. As the scale has grown, the price has dropped, a whopping 99% in the last 40 years. PV got so cheap that it has simply steamrolled all competitors. Back in the aughts, even after Obama won and was putting together his stimulus bill, multiple solar technologies were in vigorous development. Thin film solar, concentrated solar power, building integrated solar, multi-junction solar, all sorts of exotic stuff. There was even this one cool company called Solyndra that made cylindrical solar PV tubes. There were boosters of all these technologies who could tell you chapter and verse about their advantages over plain old PV. They pulled in a lot of venture capital and some government loan guarantees making those pitches. But in the end, they and their funders underestimated PV's one great advantage. It is dirt cheap and getting cheaper all the time. It is virtually impossible for anything else to catch up. PV's domination of the solar market has some energy analysts concerned, thinking that government ought to step in and encourage innovation and tech diversity in this area, in preparation for the day that PV reaches its limits and plateaus. Varun Sivaram, a researcher at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, who was recently made a senior advisor to presidential climate envoy John Kerry, has a whole book on this subject. Some researchers disagree and think super cheap PV will be good enough to get us where we need to go. 
Either way, it is clear that without concerted government intervention, PV is going to dominate for the foreseeable future. Is the same true of lithium-ion batteries? Are they going to dominate in energy storage the way PV has dominated in solar electricity? They already largely own both the EV and storage markets and have a substantial head start in manufacturing capacity and know-how. That head start is only going to get more daunting over the next decade. This is from a brief on the future of lithium-ion batteries by a company called Sila Nanotechnologies. Quote, Before Tesla was founded, lithium-ion batteries were almost exclusively used in consumer electronics, mainly laptops and cell phones. At the time of the launch of the Tesla Roadster in 2008, the total global lithium-ion manufacturing capacity was approximately 20 gigawatt-hours per year. By 2030, we expect over 2,000 gigawatt-hours of annual production capacity based on already announced plans by cell manufacturers." Unquote. That would be 100x growth in 22 years and a hell of a head of steam for any competitor to take on. Quote, it would be unwise to assume conventional lithium-ion batteries are approaching the end of their era, concluded a recent comprehensive review in Nature Communications. Quote, many engineering and chemistry approaches are still available to improve their performance, unquote. Nonetheless, lithium-ion batteries do face restraining pressures, especially materials and safety concerns, which we'll get into later. They could hit speed bumps, and when you're talking about trillion-plus dollar markets, even a niche could be worth billions. Will competitors be able to get a foothold? It's an enormous prize, with more researchers and entrepreneurs chasing it every day. That is what we will be exploring during Battery Week. Next up, a primer on how lithium-ion batteries work. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. Battery Week. In my last post, I went over why lithium-ion batteries are so important to decarbonizing both transportation and the electricity sector. Next week, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of different kinds of lithium-ion batteries to see how different chemistries offer different kinds of performance and are competing for different market niches. Before that, though, it's worth the time to do a little review of battery basics. If you are like me a month ago, you probably have a hazy understanding at best of the structure of batteries and the processes involved in running them. I'm not going to get into any complicated chemistry. Believe me, no one wants that. 
but I thought it would be helpful later when we get into the competition within battery markets to have some rudimentary terms and concepts clear in our heads. Headline 1. Batteries 101. Batteries. How do they work? As the name suggests, electrochemical batteries store energy via chemical reaction. Discharging the battery involves a chemical reaction that produces electrons. Recharging the battery involves a chemical reaction that stores electrons. The basic unit of the electrochemical battery is the cell. In the cell, two electrodes, a negative or anode and positive or cathode, are separated by an electrolyte. When the anode and cathode are connected in a circuit, two things happen. One, negatively charged electrons flow from the former to the latter, generating power. The amount of power is determined by two factors. Current, the number of electrons traveling in a given circuit, and voltage, the force with which the electrons are traveling. Power equals current times voltage. It's like a river. The force exerted by the water will depend on how much there is and how fast it's moving. You can get the same force with less water if it moves faster, or with slower water if there's more of it. Similarly, you can get the same power with less current if you have more voltage, and vice versa. The second thing that happens is the anode releases positively charged ions into the electrolyte to balance the reaction, and the cathode absorbs a commensurate amount. Some batteries have a thin, semi-permeable barrier within the electrolyte to regulate the flow of ions. Recharging a battery basically involves reversing the reaction, returning the electrons and the ions to the anode. The anode will be a material that gives up electrons easily in chemical reaction with the electrolyte. The cathode will be a material eager to absorb them. The propensity to shed or absorb electrons is known as standard potential, and the difference in standard potential between the anode and the cathode will determine the battery's total electrical potential. The bigger the difference, the more potential. The whole game of battery design and development is to find a combination of anode, cathode, and electrolyte that performs well along a broad set of criteria, holds a lot of energy, releases energy quickly, operates safely, lasts a long time, is cheap, etc. The tragedy of battery development is that there are always trade-offs. High performance on one criterion generally means lower performance on another. Optimize for holding more energy and you limit how quickly energy can be released. Optimize for safety and you limit energy density, and so on. Battery development has seen dozens of chemistries come and go, but four have stuck and scaled to mass market size. Lead acid, nickel cadmium, nickel metal hydride, and lithium ion. 
Lithium-ion batteries have hit on a combination of anode, cathode, and electrolyte that performs well enough along several criteria, especially cost, to work for most short-duration applications today. They dominate consumer electronics, electric passenger vehicles, and short-duration grid-scale storage, and are expanding in other markets as well. They have gotten very cheap and a large-scale manufacturing capacity has grown up around them. Let's take a closer look at lithium-ion batteries. Headline 2, Lithium-Ion Batteries 101. Lithium-ion batteries have been around in commercial form since the early 1990s, though obviously they've improved quite a bit since then. Today's most common and popular lithium-ion batteries use graphite, i.e. carbon, as the anode, a lithium compound as the cathode, and some organic goo as the electrolyte. Lithium-ion batteries boast two key advantages over prior battery chemistries. First, they need very little electrolyte. Lithium-ion batteries are what's known as intercalation batteries, which means the same lithium ions nestled intercalated in the structure of the anode transfer to be intercalated in the cathode during discharge. The electrolyte only has to serve as a conduit. It doesn't have to store many ions. Consequently, the cell doesn't need much of it. Saving on electrolyte saves space and weight. And as a bonus, the process is almost perfectly reversible, which gives lithium-ion batteries their high cycle life. Second, lithium-ion batteries squeeze lots of energy into a small space. Lithium is the lightest metal at the upper left corner of the periodic table and extremely energy-dense, so lithium-ion battery cells can work with electrodes 0.1 millimeters thick. Compare that to lead-acid electrodes, which are several millimeters thick. This also makes lithium-ion batteries smaller and lighter. Because they are lightweight and high energy density, lithium-ion batteries got their initial foothold in small electronic devices, phones and laptops and the like. They scaled up quickly to run handheld power tools and lawnmowers, and then completely took over passenger electric vehicles. Recently, they've scaled up further to create home storage batteries and giant stationary battery arrays for grid storage. It's worth noting that even the biggest lithium-ion battery installation is just stacks upon stacks of cells, like Legos. Lithium-ion batteries are extremely modular. They can be scaled precisely to need. Headline 3, Lithium-Ion Battery Manufacturing There are a number of ways of manufacturing lithium-ion battery cells. Button cells, pouch cells, prismatic cells, but the most common for portable and electric vehicle applications is the cylindrical cell. Think of it like a jelly roll. A super-thin metal anode is coated with a film, usually graphite, then a super-thin separator is laid on top, then a super-thin metal cathode coated with a film, usually some lithium compound, is laid on top of that. Several layers are stacked this way, and then the whole thing is rolled up 
and packed into a cylinder. Before the cylinder is capped, electrolyte goop is injected to infuse between the layers. Cells are then clustered into modules, which are in turn clustered together into packs. There's a whole active area of lithium-ion battery innovation around cell design. Tesla recently debuted a new, bigger cylindrical cell, the 4680, which is 46 millimeters wide and 80 millimeters tall, which improved everything, energy, range, and power. Tesla is also putting these cells together into packs that form part of the structure of their vehicles, which will reduce overall weight and complexity. I'm not going to get into lithium-ion battery manufacturing innovation too much, other than to note that there's a lot going on there. The manufacturing techniques that produce lithium-ion batteries are being continuously refined, a process that is accelerated by scale. According to RMI, quote, lithium-ion battery suppliers are poised to reach at least 1,330 gigawatt hours of combined annual manufacturing capacity by 2023, unquote. According to S&P Global, quote, global lithium-ion battery capacity is set to increase 218% between 2020 and 2025, unquote. That is a lot of scale. The main thing to take from the boom in lithium-ion battery manufacturing is that any competitor to lithium-ion batteries will need to take advantage of existing manufacturing processes. Quote, the way these battery factories are building up now, says Dan Steingart, a materials scientist and co-director of Columbia University's Electrochemical Energy Center, they're so capital-intensive that whatever chemistries come next will be produced and manufactured in such a way that they leverage existing infrastructure, if at all possible, unquote. This will be important later. Some lithium-ion battery competitors can slipstream into existing manufacturing, and some can't. For Battery Week, I'm going to focus less on manufacturing and disposal and more on the battery chemistries themselves, which ones are dominating and which have a chance of catching on. Headline 4. Lithium-ion is a family of battery chemistries. Lithium-ion batteries are not a singular thing, but a family. They have in common that they use lithium in either the cathode or anode and exchange charged lithium ions. This leaves quite a bit of room for different chemistries. There are many types of lithium compounds, many choices of anode or cathode materials to pair with them, and many choices of electrolytes. That yields a very large matrix of possible combinations and chemistries, each with its different performance characteristics and psi acronym. We're not going to cover all of them, though. Even I have my limits. We'll just hit some of the most discussed alternatives. The most common lithium-ion battery chemistries used today are lithium-nickel-manganese-cobalt-oxide, or NMC, and lithium-nickel-cobalt-aluminum, or NCA, which use compounds of those metals as the cathode. 
Lithium and nickel turn out to be a knockout combo, incredibly light and energy dense. Nonetheless, there are others. Here is a list of the lithium ion battery chemistries that we will at least touch on starting in my next post. And listeners, I am going to spare you this list. You can check it out on the website. Why bother with any of these alternatives? Why not just stick to NMC and NCA? There are two sources of pressure on the industry to diversify. Headline 5. Lithium-ion batteries face pressure to diversify performance. Most lithium-ion battery innovation to date has focused on energy density for passenger EVs. In some applications, though, like home energy storage or fleet vehicles, energy density matters less than safety and cost. As use cases diversify, so do performance demands. With that in mind, let's take a quick look at the various metrics used to judge battery performance. RMI uses eight. First, energy density, or watt-hours per liter. This is energy per unit of volume, or more prosaically, energy relative to space occupied, sometimes called volumetric energy density. Two, specific energy or watt-hours per kilogram. This is energy per unit of weight, sometimes called gravimetric energy density. Third is power cost, or dollars per kilowatt. This is cost per unit of power output. To return to our river analogy, it's the cost per unit of force the river is capable of exerting at its peak. Fourth, energy cost, or dollars per kilowatt hour. This is the cost per unit of energy output, i.e. the amount of force exerted by the river over an hour. Fifth is cycle life. This is the number of times a battery can discharge and recharge before it falls below some threshold of capacity, usually set at 80% due to degradation. Six is fast charge, i.e. how fast the battery can charge, or how fast it can accept power. Seventh is safety. Some batteries, particularly those with cobalt, suffer from thermal runaway, which means if one cell goes haywire and heats up, it heats up the next one and the next one, so on in a self-reinforcing cycle that results in fires and battery recalls. And eighth is temperature range, which is just the range of temperatures in which a battery can effectively operate. As I said, it's possible to optimize for one or a small set of these criteria, but doing so inevitably involves trade-offs in others. Headline 7. Lithium-ion batteries face pressure to diversify materials. Cobalt used in standard NMC and NCA chemistries is highly toxic, comes almost entirely from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and is mined amidst terrible human rights abuses. Lithium and nickel are fairly nasty in their mining too, and may run into supply constraints as the market grows. Nickel in particular is a source of current stress.
There's lots of innovation underway to reduce the social and environmental impacts of materials mining and increase supply, but as we will see next week, there are also competing battery chemistries that eschew these problematic materials entirely. Smart manufacturers like Tesla are diversifying their battery lines in anticipation of supply issues, trying to evolve away from cobalt and secure a steady domestic supply of lithium and nickel. Biden's infrastructure plan, which aims to kickstart a domestic EV supply chain, could help. Headline 8. Some battery diversity will happen. The question is how much. You can find people in the battery field who stress that conventional lithium-ion batteries have too great a head start for anything else to catch up. In its white paper on the future of lithium-ion batteries, Sila Nanotechnologies writes, quote, Technologies that claim they will replace lithium-ion often grab headlines, but scale limitations make that impractical within a generation. It is for this reason that by 2050, while lithium-ion will not constitute all of energy storage, it will be the most dominant chemistry by far, with most everything else relegated to niche applications." Unquote. Lou Schick, Director of Investments at Clean Energy Ventures, a venture capital firm that invests in clean technology projects, stressed to me the importance of scale and familiarity. Quote, the only selection criteria for any project is, is it bankable? Can I get insurance for it? Is it consumer product? Any insurgent that wants to get to that state and is in a lab right now is 10 years away from being bankable, if they are very successful. So you're never catching up, and it has nothing to do with chemistry or physics. Unquote. You can find others who believe diversity is inevitable. Quote, it's not like the Lord of the Rings, one ring to rule them all, says Michael Burrs, an engineer who founded and runs battery company Enzinc. There will be different chemistries for different applications. Unquote. Among the analysts more bullish on diversity are those at RMI, who wrote a report in 2019 called Breakthrough Batteries that surveyed possible competitors to conventional lithium-ion batteries. They write, quote, Unlike the market development pathway for solar photovoltaic technology, battery R&D and manufacturing investment continue to pursue a wide range of chemistries, configurations, and battery types with performance attributes that are better suited to specific use cases." Unquote. RMI is convinced that other battery chemistries with other performance attributes will begin to find markets and scale up by the mid-2020s. Chloe Holtzinger, an energy storage analyst at the research firm IHS Market, told me that diversity will be a market asset. Quote, What we're going to see in the future is increasing diversity in all three of those areas, the anode, cathode, and electrolyte. Automakers will be able to take advantage of this diversity to make their portfolios robust against commodity price spikes and distinguish themselves from other automakers. They can say, we're the only ones that provide this kind of battery, unquote. It's possible that this disagreement amounts to less than it appears. Even skeptics agree that some competitors might find niches. 
The main disagreement seems to be over how fast that might happen and how big the niches will be. After all, says Schick in Trillion Dollar Markets, quote, if the market fragments by use case, the individual use cases can be quite enormous, unquote. Conventional lithium-ion batteries have a huge head start, but the pressure to diversify may offer some hope to innovators both within the lithium-ion battery family and outside it. In my next post, I'll get into some of that intra-family competition within lithium-ion batteries, a space that is rife with ongoing innovation. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. Battery Week at Volts. I am your host, David Roberts. We have talked about why lithium batteries are so important, and we went through a basic primer on how they work. Today, we're going to get into the competition within the broad lithium battery family among all the different kinds of batteries that use lithium and exchange charged lithium ions. There are a few clear leaders, lithium nickel manganese cobalt oxide, or NMC, lithium nickel cobalt aluminum, NCA, and lithium ferrophosphate, or LFP, that have achieved mass market scale, and several others looking to get in on the action. The market prize is likely to exceed a trillion dollars within the next decade, so if any of these competitors can even carve out a substantial niche, it could be worth billions. Let's look at the players. Headline 1. Better NMC and NCA. The bulk of lithium-ion battery research these days is going to improve the dominant batteries on the market, mainly by reducing the amount of cobalt, the most toxic and expensive ingredient. Most EV makers use NMC batteries. Tesla uses NCA. In the past, it's been difficult to push down the amount of cobalt in these batteries. It plays an important balancing role. But manufacturer LG recently introduced an NMC 811 battery. 80% nickel, 10% manganese, 10% cobalt. GM will use them in its new line, including in the Hummer, and Tesla will put them in some of its Model 3s in China. Most big battery manufacturers, including Panasonic, which supplies many of Tesla's batteries, have vowed to gradually reduce and eventually eliminate cobalt. Nickel is the key to energy density. Tesla, Volkswagen, and others are working on special high nickel battery varieties that will be used for specialty vehicles that require extra high energy density, like larger SUVs and trucks. But not every vehicle needs that, 
and nickel supply constraints are looming, so work is also being done to further boost manganese, a much more stable, abundant material, and reduce cobalt. Headline 2. Silicon Anodes Many lithium-ion battery developers are experimenting with silicon as an anode coating, partially or completely replacing graphite. Tesla has been working to increase the proportion of silicon in its anode since at least 2015. Silicon holds up to nine times more lithium ions than graphite, so energy density improves, range expands by 20%, and a silicon battery can charge and discharge much more quickly than graphite batteries, so power density improves as well. But silicon expands when it absorbs ions, so it breaks down quickly. Cycle life is still much lower than batteries with graphite. If engineers can overcome that problem, and Tesla has vowed that it can, lithium-ion batteries could take a leap forward soon. Sila Nanotechnologies, in its brief on the future of lithium-ion batteries, considers silicon anodes the biggest potential near-term market-shifting breakthrough in the space. It summarizes, quote, There are no high-volume commercial lithium-ion batteries yet in which a silicon anode entirely replaces the graphite one. When it does arrive, the reward will have been worth the wait. We expect automotive cells with NCA or NCM cathodes paired with silicon dominant anodes will increase energy density by up to 50%, thereby dropping the dollar per kilowatt hour cost by 30 to 40% in less than a decade. End quote. That is a mind-boggling prize if any manufacturer can unlock it. Silicon anodes are technically cathode agnostic, meaning they can work with any cathode material, though most testing so far has used NMC cathodes. If engineers can crack the code and make silicon anodes with high cycle life, it could benefit any and all cathodes, including, for example, LFP. See below. Headline 3. Fluorides as cathodes. One thing I didn't mention about silicon as an anode, it doesn't operate via intercalation like most lithium-ion batteries. Instead of nestling into the anode, ions react with the silicon and bond with it, a process called conversion. That makes it more difficult to peel the ions off without damage, but it can hold way more ions. With anodes, which are currently the limiting factor on most batteries, improving, there's more room for cathode improvement. Sila Nanotechnologies is big on research into fluorides. It cites metal fluoride-based cathodes like iron fluoride or copper fluoride and sulfur-based cathodes, which also operate via conversion rather than intercalation and can also store more ions. It writes, quote, it's plausible that with a conversion cathode and an engineered low-swell silicon anode, the cycle life of lithium-ion can be extended all the way to 10,000 full cycles, 
while also having the highest energy density in the market, thus breaking the power versus energy compromise." End quote. Sila believes it's only that combination, a conversion-based anode and a conversion-based cathode, that can bring lithium-ion batteries prices down to $50 a kilowatt hour by 2030 and $30 per kilowatt hour by 2040. If that happened, it would be absolutely wild and almost certainly crush all competitors. Headline 4. Lithium Ferrophosphate, or LFP. LFPs, which use a lithium-iron compound as cathode, were among the first lithium-ion batteries to commercialize. They are already standard in China, used in its ubiquitous scooters and small EVs. Quote, the big Chinese battery makers, BYD and CATL and Lysian, each one of those is larger by itself than any other battery company that's not in China, says Liu Shik, director of investments at Clean Energy Ventures, and they have been making lithium iron phosphate cells for 10 years, end quote. A few years ago, it looked like LFPs were going to be displaced by NMCs and NCAs, but lately they've made a comeback and now have a decent case that they could take the lead in the EV and stationary storage markets. They have already captured almost half the Chinese EV market. LFPs use lithium ferrophosphate as the cathode, replacing nickel, manganese, and or aluminum. The advantages relative to nickel-based competitors. They are cheaper on a materials basis, though not yet on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. They have a higher cycle life. Matt Roberts, previously executive director of the Energy Storage Association, now working at the battery company Simplify, says his company's LFP batteries are warrantied for 10,000 cycles, compared to 2,500 to 5,000 for cobalt batteries. They have higher power density, they have much higher safety and lower toxicity, and they replace problematic and or rare metals with iron, which is safe and abundant. In exchange for these advantages, LFPs offer lower energy density. There are fewer spaces for ions to intercalate. However, because they are so safe, LFPs do not require the same protective packaging as NMCs and NCAs, so they can gain some of that efficiency back at the pack level. Tesla says that while LFPs have 50% of the energy density of their main competitors, an LFP-based vehicle can still get 75% of the range. Volkswagen announced last month that starting in 2023, it would be employing lithium iron phosphate or LFP in entry models, nickel manganese in volume models, and nickel-rich NCM in high-end models. Tesla said more or less the same thing at its Battery Day event in 2020. It plans to use LFPs for an upcoming cheap, i.e. under $25,000 vehicle, the Model 3, and for its commercial energy storage. Current LFPs are not going to feature in high-performance vehicles, but most vehicles aren't that. They are quote, good enough, essentially, for any kind of commuter car, 
Schick says, I think you're going to see a whole bunch of economy cars that are LFP. LFPs will be used in taxis, rideshare vehicles, and fleet vehicles, along with scooters and rickshaws and motorcycles. It will be the cheap, reliable, everyday option. And if LFPs can make use of silicon anodes, they could potentially nudge up into the over 300 mile range category. Energy density is also less important in the energy storage market, where price, capacity, and safety rule. LFPs' high cycle life and low costs make them attractive in the grid storage market. As Julian Spector wrote in February at Green Tech Media, quote, In 2015, LFP batteries only served 10% of the grid storage market, according to research from Woodmac. NMC dominated with more than 70% market share. But since then, NMC's market share has trended down while LFPs rose. Analysts predict LFP will become the leading chemistry for grid batteries by 2030, capturing 30% of an increasingly diversified market. As for distributed, behind-the-meter storage, in some markets like California and New York City, Tesla home batteries, which still use NMC, are not allowed inside garages, thanks to the risk of thermal runaway, which can lead to fires. LFPs have passed an extensive regimen of safety tests and will be available everywhere. That gives them a tangible market advantage. Roberts is convinced the safety issue is going to rise in salience, thanks in part to the repeated recalls from manufacturers like LG Chem. The latest is going to cost Hyundai a cool $900 million. What's your levelized cost of energy? Roberts asks. You're out there quoting, I can do a $100 a kilowatt hour for a battery pack, but if in two years you have to do a billion dollar recall, when does that get factored into the levelized cost of energy? With sufficient manufacturing scale, the price of any battery approaches the price of its materials, and LFP uses incredibly cheap materials. If it scales sufficiently, it could potentially get cheap enough to dominate the storage market, fighting off other lithium-ion batteries in the home storage market and other chemistries and form factors, which we will look at in the next post, in the bulk storage market. Quote, of all the lithium-ion chemistries, LFP may play the largest role in accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy, end quote, says Jordan Geisige, who makes battery explanatory videos under the moniker The Limiting Factor. They are superb. I cannot recommend them highly enough. Headline 5. Lithium Manganese Oxide, or LMO, and Lithium Manganese Nickel Oxide, or LMNO. Manganese is abundant, safe, and stable at a wide variety of temperatures, though its energy density is lower than cobalt or nickel. Because LMOs don't contain cobalt and avoid the threat of thermal runaway, they are often used in medical equipment, as well as power tools, electric bikes, and EVs. The original Nissan LEAF was a lithium manganese oxide cathode, says Dan Steingart, a materials scientist and co-director of Columbia University's Electrochemical Energy Center 
And the Nissan Leaf has never had a battery that initiated a fire, end quote. The Leaf also didn't go very far on a charge, though. LMO may have trouble escaping its niche. LMNO, sometimes called high-voltage spinel batteries, try to retain some of the energy density of nickel while replacing cobalt. According to a 2020 study in the Journal of Power Sources, in the search for, quote, novel cathode materials with high energy density, low cost, and improved safety, LMNO is one of the most promising candidates yet to be commercialized. LMNO batteries will need to boost their still struggling cycle life before they can compete with more established chemistries. The next three batteries use lithium or lithium compounds as the anode rather than the cathode. Headline 6, Lithium Sulfur. Lithium sulfur burst onto the scene to some excitement in the late 2000s, demonstrating that a cell with lithium as the anode and sulfur as the cathode, two elements with extremely low atomic weight, could double the specific energy of conventional lithium-ion batteries. Plus, sulfur is incredibly cheap. One problem is that sulfur has very low conductivity, so something, usually carbon, has to be added to pull in the ions. More importantly, lithium sulfur batteries degrade quite quickly and have low cycle life. To date, they remain commercially unavailable. Headline 7, Lithium Metal Anodes. Simple solid lithium metal makes for a great anode in that it is highly prone to releasing electrons and ions. Use of lithium metal as an anode actually dates back to the 1970s, preceding lithium-ion battery development. In a lithium metal battery, charged lithium ions plate on or attach themselves directly to the metal anode rather than intercalating within it. The problem is that lithium is highly reactive, and ions tend to form dendrites, or tree-like formations, that reduce energy density and cycle life and increase the chances of a short or fire. It was problems with lithium's reactivity that originally led to the addition of graphite to the anode so the ions could intercalate rather than plating. That was the birth of lithium-ion batteries. But researchers and developers have recently returned to lithium metal, figuring out new ways to prevent dendrite formation. Losing the graphite on the anode drops weight and up to doubles energy density. To date, lithium metal has typically been paired with a standard NMC cathode. U.S. startup Laval is building a gigafactory to produce just such batteries, expected to open in 2023. It is aiming first at markets where energy density is prized, like shipping and aviation. Technically, though, lithium metal as an anode is cathode agnostic. It could potentially work to enable rechargeability and better performance from cheaper cathode materials like zinc, aluminum, and sulfur. Based on pure materials costs, quote, the true least cost system for a lithium-based rechargeable battery is lithium metal and a sulfur cathode, says Purdue University's Rebecca Seitz. 
Much of the R&D action, though, is around electrolytes. Lithium metal batteries with liquid electrolytes are around and are still being researched, but it's the solid electrolytes generating the most excitement. Headline 8. Solid Electrolytes or Solid State The liquid electrolytes used in most lithium-ion batteries limit the kinds of electrodes that can be used and the shape of the battery cell. Plus, they are often flammable, a safety hazard. Tons of research is underway on solid electrolytes that enable much higher energy density and can't catch fire. Many researchers expect solid-state batteries to set off a whole new round of innovation. RMI writes, quote, several solid-state companies are targeting 2024 to 2025 for initial EV commercial lines, but demonstrations would likely happen before then, end quote. Companies with lithium metal solid-state batteries, like Solid Power and QuantumScape, have received huge investments from automakers and investors like Bill Gates. Nonetheless, for all the hype, there is a considerable strain of skepticism about solid-state. The EV company Fisker, after years of big promises, abandoned solid-state entirely earlier this year. Quote, it's the kind of technology where, when you feel like you're 90% there, you're almost there, founder Henrik Fisker told The Verge, until you realize the last 10% is much more difficult than the first 90, end quote. Quote, the cost and safety of current lithium-ion tech is improving so rapidly that a technology that's 10 years away, in Fisker's estimation, is just not worthy of pursuit, says Roberts. At the end of the day, energy density is just not critical in a lot of applications. Schick is blunt. Quote, none of the solid-state lithium batteries are on track to do anything that anybody cares about. End quote. Quote, while there are technical reasons why this technology appears to be the holy grail of batteries, writes Silent Nanotechnologies, the reality is that even if the technology works, and that is a big if after 40 years of development, it is unlikely to find more than niche opportunities in the market. Let's call this one an important maybe. Headline, what are we on now, 10? Headline 10. Lithium Titanium Oxide, or LTO. LTO batteries have lithium titanate nanocrystals coating the anode, which increases surface area and allows for many more electrons to be released much faster than graphite. Consequently, they have incredibly high power density. They can release energy quickly and can recharge faster than any other lithium-ion battery. They also have high cycle life and high recharging efficiency. They are lower voltage than conventional lithium-ion batteries and thus have lower energy density, but because of this they are also extremely safe to operate. The performance characteristics are amazing, says Roberts, but it's just crazy expensive. For now, LTOs are used in some EVs and smaller applications like e-bikes. If they come down in price, they could find other niches where power density is important, like industrial machinery. Headline 11. Lithium Air Out toward the research frontier is Lithium Air, which uses lithium metal as the anode, a variety of materials as the electrolyte, that's where the research is most intensive. And as the cathode, air. Yes, air. 
Lithium exchanges electrons and ions with the air through the electrolyte. Wacky. Because it jettisons the entire weight of the cathode, air is, after all, quite light. Lithium air has incredibly high specific energy, i.e. energy per unit of weight. Theoretically, as high as the specific energy of gasoline. In practice, only a fraction of that potential has been demonstrated. But even that fraction is about five times the specific energy of conventional lithium-ion batteries. All sorts of improvements in electrolytes, cycle life, and scalability will be needed before lithium air will become practical, but in terms of 2030 dark horses, this is one to watch. So, that's a review of the lithium-based battery chemistries jockeying for position in a trillion-plus dollar market. In my next post, I'll look at a few non-lithium-based chemistries that are hoping to capture some of those niches. Zinc and flow and liquid metal. Oh my. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time. Battery Week here at Volts, where we use the term weak somewhat loosely. Up to now, we've been focusing on lithium-ion batteries, why they are so important, how they work, and the varieties of lithium-ion batteries that are battling it out for the biggest battery market, electric vehicles. It's fairly clear from that discussion that lithium-ion batteries in some incarnation are going to dominate EVs for a long while to come. There is no other commercial battery that can pack as much power into as small a space and lightweight a package. Plus, lithium-ion batteries have built up a large manufacturing base, driving down prices with scale and learning. Their lock on the EV market is likely unbreakable, at least for the foreseeable future. But there's another battery market where some competitors hope to get a foothold, grid storage. They think there's space in that market waiting to be claimed. Currently, there's a robust and growing short-duration grid storage market, offering storage of anywhere from seconds to provide grid services like voltage and frequency regulation to four hours. Lithium-ion batteries have about 99% of that market locked up. In some areas, projects with solar power coupled with four hours of storage are bidding in competitively with natural gas. Most energy wonks believe that to fully shift the grid to zero carbon energy, we will eventually need long-duration storage as well, to the tune of weeks, months, or even seasons. Lithium-ion batteries are almost certainly not going to cut it for that purpose, so it will be some combination of other technologies. I'll write about long-duration storage some other time. In between short and long, 
there's something that might be called mid-duration storage, covering the range between 4 and 24 hours. What technologies will cover that range? Lithium-ion batteries can do it, of course. Theoretically, they can cover any duration. You just stack more and more batteries. But the economics get extremely difficult. Mid-duration projects will require lots of capacity, but might run comparatively rarely. As duration gets to four hours and above, the cost of lithium-ion batteries, at least today's lithium-ion batteries, starts to get prohibitive. This is where other batteries come in. Challengers to lithium-ion batteries that hope to beat them at longer durations, though they aren't quite there yet. There really aren't competitive technologies in the battery electric vehicle space aside from all these different lithium-ion batteries, says Chloe Holtzinger, an energy storage analyst at IHS Market. But there's a ton of different battery technologies for grid storage. They just tend to be significantly more expensive than lithium-ion batteries. These challengers believe they are better suited to the needs of the mid-duration grid storage market, where energy density matters less than capacity, calendar and cycle life, and safety. They think they can bring costs down to competitive levels at those durations. Some of them think they can find other niches as well, but it's grid storage that offers the most realistic shot. Headline 1. Flow Batteries Flow batteries operate on a fundamentally different principle than the batteries we've looked at so far. Rather than storing energy in metals on the electrodes, energy is stored as a dissolved metal in an aqueous electrolyte. The analyte is stored in one tank, the catholite is stored in another. Pumps circulate the fluids past electrodes, sometimes in a fuel cell, where they don't quite mix thanks to a thin separator, but they exchange ions and electrons, generating electricity. The key conceptual difference is that flow batteries separate energy, the amount stored, from power, the rate at which it can be released. If you want more power, you make the electrodes bigger. If you want to store more energy, you make the tanks of electrolytes bigger. And electrolytes are fairly cheap, so it's cheap to increase capacity. This is in contrast to lithium-ion batteries, which double in cost with each doubling of energy capacity. In theory, flow batteries can scale up to almost any size relatively cheaply. So as the demands for storage get bigger, 6 hours, 8 hours, 12 hours, the economics of flow batteries look better and better relative to lithium-ion batteries. A variety of different metals can be used in the electrolyte. For a long while, vanadium was expected to be the breakout candidate, but materials costs remain stubbornly high. Companies have also tried with zinc and iron, but recent history is littered with failed flow battery companies. Flow batteries have been the next big thing for a really long time, says Purdue University assistant professor and battery expert Rebecca Seitz, but they've never quite gotten there. The problem, as ever, is the steady march of lithium-ion batteries down the cost curve. For a three or four hour system, a lithium-ion battery outperforms any flow battery now, says Dan Steingart, materials scientist and co-director of Columbia University's Electrochemical Energy Center. Fifteen years ago, that was not predicted. 
Flow batteries can theoretically expand their energy capacity indefinitely for little more than the cost of the electrolyte goop to fill the tanks, though pumps and other accoutrements add to the cost a little bit. But when we're below $100 per kilowatt hour on the cost of lithium-ion batteries, says Steingart, you're really close to the cost of the goop. And flow batteries, like all challengers, face the fact that lithium-ion batteries are well-established and well-understood. It's easier to finance a lithium-ion battery, says Steingart, because all the existence proofs and their inherent reliability. I can predict the fate and the failure. That makes the operating and maintenance costs of lithium-ion batteries incredibly low on the order of 1% of the cost of capital, whereas for flow batteries, it is 2.5% at best. There are still flow battery challengers in the field, like Largo Clean Energy, which is commercializing vanadium flow batteries, ESS, which is selling an iron flow battery, and the mysterious Form Energy, which counts an aqueous sulfur flow battery among its offerings. But there is a growing sense in the field that flow batteries aren't going to be able to catch up to lithium-ion batteries, at least not anytime soon, without government help. Headline 2. Zinc Batteries Several companies are working on batteries that exchange zinc ions instead of lithium ions. It's the second most popular metal for batteries. Zinc has the particular advantage of being light and energy-dense, like lithium. So, with relatively modest adjustments, it can slipstream into the lithium-ion manufacturing process. Zinc is plentiful, cheaper than lithium, largely benign, and makes batteries that are easier to recycle. Like other lithium alternatives, zinc sacrifices energy density, but makes some of it back up in savings on safety systems at the battery pack level, thanks to the lack of any need for fire suppression. This puts it in the same market as lithium iron phosphate, LFP. Smaller commuter and city vehicles, robo-taxis, scooters, e-bikes, and energy storage. Some in the zinc crew have larger designs. We think we can coexist with lithium-ion and replace lead acid, says Michael Burrs, president and CEO of NZinc, which has developed a new zinc anode it says can come close to lithium-ion batteries on energy density. Remember, lead acid batteries are still ubiquitous. Forklifts use them, airplanes, snowmobiles, says Burrs. Data centers have huge banks of lead-acid batteries they use for switchover power. It's still a $45 billion global market. NZinc thinks it can hit a sweet spot close to the energy density of lithium-ion batteries, close to the low price of lead-acid batteries, safer than either, and good enough to substitute for a big chunk of both. Zinc anodes are cathode agnostic, so Burr's envisions, rather than becoming a battery manufacturer, becoming an anode supplier, zinc inside, modeled on Intel inside processors. Research is underway on a number of cathodes, from manganese and nickel to, just as with lithium, air. A zinc air battery has a system-level specific energy of anywhere between 250 to 350 watt-hours per kilogram, says Burrs, well above most lithium-ion batteries. The trick is making it controllable and rechargeable. 
There are zinc air battery companies offering commercial products that believe they've solved those problems, like Nant Energy, which is targeting its zinc air batteries at off-grid markets in developing countries. There are other zinc-based technologies as well. A company called EOS is making a zinc hybrid cathode that it says is safe and long-lasting. The much-hyped Zinc 8 has developed a zinc air hybrid flow battery that it claims can beat lithium-ion batteries' costs at higher storage durations. Most of these batteries make the same basic claims. They are less energy-dense than lithium-ion batteries, but they are safer, no fires, they are made with benign and plentiful materials, no supply problems, and they are cheaper at high capacities and durations. It's just that last part that's tricky, since the price and capabilities of lithium-ion batteries are a moving target. Zinc backers are confident that as the 100% clean energy pledges being made by cities and companies start to bite, and the market for grid storage expands, demand for longer duration storage will expand with it. California, for instance, is putting lots of money towards zinc battery demonstration projects with an eye toward diversifying its storage options. Headline three, sodium ion batteries. Lithium, nickel, and cobalt all have their issues. You know what material doesn't? Salt. Sodium compounds can be substituted for lithium compounds to create sodium ion batteries, which have been the source of considerable hype for at least five years now. The basic idea and manufacturing process is the same for sodium ion batteries as lithium ion batteries. You could use existing gigafactory structures to produce a sodium ion battery, says Steingart. But unlike the latter, the former can't use graphite for the anode because it can't capture enough of the relatively bigger sodium ions, so something called hard carbon is typically used instead. Research is underway to find more energy-dense sodium compounds for the cathode and cheaper materials for the anode. Sodium ion has a lower energy density than lithium ion, says Tim Kretschak, an innovation analyst with Con Edison. So all the materials that go into it have to be correspondingly that much cheaper. There have also been some high-profile sodium ion battery failures. A promising startup called Aquion, backed by Bill Gates and showered with awards, declared bankruptcy in 2017. But here, too, there are surviving challengers. A company called Natron Energy is currently selling a sodium ion battery that uses Prussian blue a dark blue synthetic pigment as the anode, and a sodium ion electrolyte. It has received, quote, a total of more than 50 million in venture funding and more than 5 million in ARPA-E and DOE funding, reports Eric Wessoff, and has a product currently on the market. Like NZINC, it is going after some lead acid applications, like data centers and forklifts, and some lithium ion battery applications like stationary storage, hoping its long life and safety can carve out a niche. To my eye, sodium ion batteries appear to be stuck in the same spot as the previous two batteries. Better than lithium ion batteries on some metrics for some applications, but so far behind on manufacturing and bankability that scaling them up 
is a Sisyphean task. Headline four, liquid metal batteries. A company called Ambry was spun out of MIT back in 2010 and has been threatening ever since to commercialize a battery for low-cost, long-lifetime grid storage. It too has received money from Bill Gates. It ran into problems with its initial battery in 2015, laid off a quarter of its workforce, started over, and now produces a calcium antimony battery with a liquid calcium alloy anode, a molten salt electrolyte, and a cathode comprised of solid particles of antimony. The liquids and suspended particles are contained in a positively charged stainless steel box with a negatively charged electrode plug on top. The battery will pass no current at room temperature, but on site, the contents of the boxes are superheated to 500 degrees Celsius, which activates the materials, the metals, alloy and de-alloy, with the cathode being entirely consumed and then reformed as the batteries charge and discharge. Because the contents are liquids, the battery has no memory. It is not affected or degraded by absorbing or releasing ions. This means it suffers virtually no loss of capacity over its lifetime. In fact, it works better if completely charged and discharged every few days. From the time they are first activated, liquid metal batteries require no outside heating or cooling for the lifetime of the system, eliminating a ton of system costs, and they can operate in a wide range of temperatures and conditions. Ambry claims the batteries contain materials that are less than half the cost of lithium-ion battery materials, can be manufactured for less than half the cost of lithium-ion batteries, and will run for 20 years at a fraction of the cost of lithium-ion batteries. After a decade of hype, promises, and false starts, Ambry is currently building a 250-megawatt-hour project on the 3,700-acre Energos Reno project in Reno, Nevada. It will be, finally, a field test of the technology. If it pans out, it could establish a foothold in grid storage. Headline 5. Should we worry about lithium-ion's headlock on grid storage? Lithium-ion batteries worked their way up from consumer electronics to appliances to cars to trucks to stationary storage, building momentum and scale. At this point, they have locked up the EV market and the short-duration grid storage market. At this point, there isn't much demand for mid-duration storage. The question is, as the grid integrates more renewables and that mid-duration market develops, whether lithium-ion batteries will simply continue their march to dominance. Right now, a few lithium-ion battery competitors can claim lower kilowatt-hour costs over longer durations, but Steingart thinks that some variant of the basic lithium-ion battery architecture is going to get to somewhere between $45 and $60 per kilowatt-hour eventually. That's just an incredibly difficult trajectory to keep pace with. Is it going to make lithium-ion batteries uncatchable, even in the grid storage space? Steingart says, I co-wrote a paper last year that basically says, up to 8 to 10 hours, the answer is probably yes, at least for the foreseeable future. Even if they weren't still sprinting ahead on costs, simply by virtue of their ubiquity and familiarity, 
lithium-ion batteries have gained an enormous institutional advantage. When it comes to grid storage projects, says Lou Schick, director of investments at Clean Energy Ventures, the installed cost is so high that the chemistry of the battery doesn't really affect the cost. He explains, quote, The soft costs of applications engineering, designing the contract, getting permission to do it, satisfying all the building codes, and so forth, by the time I'm done with all that crap, the battery itself is 20 to 30% of the installed cost, at most. End quote. In that context, the differences in performance among different chemistries are less important than simpler criteria, Schick says. Is it bankable? Can I get insurance for it? Is it standard consumer product? This, even more than long-term total costs, is the biggest barrier to lithium-ion battery competitors. Lithium-ion batteries are bankable. They are familiar. Their performance and failure modes are well understood. Any competitor has to solve the chicken and egg problem of convincing the first several investors to take on greater risks. This gets us back to an argument I raised in my introductory post. If it is true that A, we will soon need more and longer duration storage than lithium-ion batteries can provide, and B, lithium-ion batteries currently have an unbreakable hold on the market, then perhaps the federal government should proactively take steps to encourage competitors to lithium-ion batteries. Recently, the research outfit ITIF released an excellent paper by Anna Goldstein making just this argument in the context of flow batteries. Quote, in the absence of first markets that can rapidly pull flow battery innovation, the U.S. Department of Energy should push it forward with investments in research, development, testing, and demonstration. End quote. The same argument could be made on behalf of any of the battery chemistries discussed above. The market probably isn't going to mature them fast enough. The feds should help. After all the time I've spent thinking about batteries, I am of two minds about this argument. On one hand, Goldstein makes a good case that the storage needs of the electricity system will soon push past what lithium-ion batteries can provide. If that's true, it does seem like it would be better to innovate alternatives now, to be prepared. On the other hand, analysts have been wrong about the ultimate capabilities of lithium-ion batteries again and again. Lithium-ion batteries weren't going to be able to handle cars. Then they weren't going to be able to handle short-duration storage. Then they weren't going to be able to hit $100 per kilowatt hour. But they're doing all those things. If lithium-ion batteries follow a steadily declining cost curve down to $40 to $60 per kilowatt hour, it's difficult to imagine any competitor that could catch up. The only markets where competitors might have a shot is 20-plus hours of storage, and it's not even clear how much of that will ultimately be needed. Nonetheless, I think I come down in the better-safe-than-sorry camp. There's no harm in making multiple bets when the stakes are so high. Researching and innovating medium and long-duration storage technologies will bring all sorts of learning and networking benefits that we can't fully predict now. And if lithium-ion batteries continue to defy all predictions and get so cheap that nothing can compete, well, that will be a nice problem to have. Thanks for listening, y'all. See you next time.
Hello, everyone. This is Volts, and I am your host, David Roberts. For several weeks now, I have had my head buried in batteries, specifically lithium-ion batteries. How they work, why they have taken over so fast, what different varieties are competing for which markets, and where innovation will take them in the future. Even with as many PDFs as I have under my belt now, I'm still learning every day just how much I don't know. I'm not going to lie, listeners, I still have the Wikipedia page for lithium-ion batteries open in a tab. So I thought it would be nice to round out Battery Week with someone who actually does know what they're talking about. To that end, I am joined today by Chloe Holzinger, a battery analyst with the Clean Energy Technology and Renewables team at IHS Market, a research and analysis firm. Chloe keeps up with lithium-ion batteries for a living, so I was eager to talk with her about the growing market, the raw materials that make up batteries and their possible supply problems, the coolest new innovations in batteries from solid state to liquid metal, and much more. She was generous with her time, and I learned a ton. So, without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Okay, welcome, Chloe. Thanks for coming on Volts. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start uh, maybe just a little bit by you telling us how you ended up in the battery area, studying batteries, analyzing batteries uh, in the battery market. What a it's a strange niche field. How'd you end up there? Yeah, yeah, I, I sort of fell into it by accident, um, as so many people do. I got my undergraduate degree in marine chemistry and my master's degree in mechanical engineering and happened to find the one startup in the Boston area that was developing uh, batteries for underwater applications. Um, so I joined them as employee number six and got a patent and uh, worked for them until they got acquired by a defense contractor. And uh then hopped over to the market intelligence field where I've been covering the broader next generation battery technology area um, and uh, the various end applications for uh, batteries. You know, I've been here ever since. How, how long has that been? How long have you been uh, immersed in batteries? Total, including startup experience, is probably about five years. Mm, it's been a, a, an active time, an active yeah. time in that field. Let's just... Briefly talk about what lithium-ion batteries, um, you know, kind of where they came from. I think everybody's heard of them at this point. They've kind of gotten a lot of hype. But maybe tell us, like, sort of when they entered the market and sort of their market development and why they're kind of reaching this crescendo of <laughs> of hype right now. Sure, sure. So uh, I can provide a very brief uh, history here. Lithium-ion batteries were, you know, kind of invented separately um, at, at different stages by different companies. If I remember correctly, Kodak did um, some innovation on you know, actual tape casting, which is the process that's used to actually make lithium-ion batteries. Some of the core lithium-ion battery technology itself was actually developed at Exxon way back when. They just kind of sat on that. <laughs> and then some some other different key breakthroughs um, were also developed at different corporations. I think Sony was one of them as well. 
I apologize if I got any of that wrong, um, <laughs> but they, they really were initially commercialized for uh, the consumer electronics industry, and then smartphones and computing power got much better. Laptops became more commonplace. They were able to eventually make the jump from consumer electronics and these small applications to electric vehicles, whether you're talking about uh, a, a Tesla or um, a, a Toyota hybrid, um, you know, lithium-ion batteries have been uh, pretty crucial. And now we're seeing them used in uh, all these different kinds of electric mobility applications, um, as well as the grid storage space. What was the first time they showed up in an electric vehicle? Because it, it, just intuitively, the leap from a laptop to an electric vehicle seems like a pretty a pretty far leap. Who's who, who had that idea and made that happen the first time? You know, you know, I don't actually know the exact history, but you know, various people have been trying to make electric vehicles for a really long time. It's just before they were trying with lead acid batteries. Right. Um, so there were a few electric vehicle prototypes, you know, in Jimmy Carter's time. Um, <laughs> and they obviously didn't really go anywhere. You know, as much as, you know, people have lots and lots of opinions, and I certainly do as well, about Elon Musk, you know, you got to credit Tesla for really making the electric vehicle really sexy and popular again. Is it fair to say that Tesla sort of back in the Roadster era, which I guess was like 2008 or nine, is it fair to say that that's kind of what kicked off the current frenzy of development? Or do you think it was inevitable? I think both. Um, I think Tesla was really there, right place, right time, right idea, um, which is a, a pretty tough combination to come up with. I think regardless, you know, you're seeing electric vehicles really rise in all different parts of the world and different companies really leading the charge. And, uh, you know, it's such a integral part of decarbonizing um, transportation and industry. You know, if it wasn't for Tesla, I'm sure it would have been some other company. But it, it happened to be, you know, this particular American company that really got it started uh, here in the States, at least. So what's so great about lithium-ion batteries. Let's just uh, just briefly kind of look at the chemistry like and the materials. What What is the advance? You know, we had lead-acid batteries. We had, um, you know, nickel metal hydride, the nickel cadmium batteries. Batteries have been around. So what is the sort of, at the, at the chemistry level, what is it about lithium-ion batteries that's so great that has allowed them to sort of like colonize these these markets? Yeah, I mean, I could wax poetic about lithium-ion batteries. <laughs> you know, a lot of what I do in my various market roles is talk about all these other non-lithium chemistries that people are trying to develop. And there really isn't a better alternative to lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. You know, lithium-ion batteries are exactly the right combination of energy density. Um, it has good enough cycle life, which means that it you know has a fairly good battery life. You know, it has great power density. Um, it, it's able to charge in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, you know, all of these different factors and, you know, the safety is, there are certainly some safety issues, but they're pretty safe. And really all of the other different kinds of battery chemistries out there, 
you know, they have various strengths and weaknesses, but they're really unable to compete on all of those fronts for a vehicle application. You know, you have these various different grid alternatives like flow batteries, um, some of which use vanadium or zinc. Um, and those are, you know, really big and heavy. They, they are not light enough simply for um, a vehicle application. Um, or lead acid batteries, you know, you replace your lead acid battery every few years or so in your car. It doesn't have a great cycle life. It certainly doesn't have a, a strong enough energy density in order to um, fully electrify a car with a reasonable, you know, all electric range. There's really just no competition with lithium ion batteries um, for mobility applications. Does that have something to do with lithium itself just as a material? I mean, is lithium itself the secret sauce? In some ways, yeah. Um, you know, if you whip out your handy-dandy periodic table that I know everybody carries around <laughs> with them, um, you know, lithium is uh, towards the top right of the periodic table. Perhaps I may have just said exactly the wrong thing. We're, we're both going to have to Google periodic table now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is towards the top, which means that it's one of the lightest elements. Oh, it's um, top left. I'm, I'm checking here. It is actually yes, the top left. Yes, thank you. Uh, just perhaps, below hydrogen, it looks like it's the second lightest material. It is. It is. And right below lithium should be sodium. I haven't completely disappointed my chemistry teachers. <laughs> you know, even if you go to that one row below lithium, you know, that's a much bigger atom. And that bigger atom means that the energy density of that battery system is going to be smaller. Um, you know, you're going to have less ion exchange um, per kilogram of material. And so the lightness of the lithium atom or element or ion is definitely a part of what makes lithium ion batteries superior to, to so many other different battery technologies. And there are a few other different, you know, arguments here. You know, there are some batteries that are multivalent in that they exchange a couple uh, electrons instead of one electron. Um, but those are still extremely early on in their development. Well, let's talk about the lithium-ion battery market then. So you, you said, you know, they sort of grew and completely ate consumer electronics and then have jumped up and basically now dominate EVs, I think. So, so what's the sort of lay of the land on lithium-ion, like where they're being used, you know, kind of what's driving the, all this development and innovation? It's really the electric mobility space. Um, you know, lithium-ion batteries today are definitely good enough for an all-electric vehicle, you know, as we're clearly seeing. There are a few different factors that are driving further innovation in this area. So first is that automakers really want to be able to rely on this lithium-ion battery value chain for the long term. And there are a variety of different questions, whether or not they're valid is another point, but um, you know, there are a lot of doubts about whether or not um, various key metals are able right. to scale up their production to meet some of these astronomical projections that automakers have around electric vehicles. So some of the, the crucial ones are uh, nickel, cobalt, and lithium. 
Um, and so there is a lot of innovation right now uh, around uh, developing technologies that are more robust against uh, some of those fluctuations in key metals uh, supply, demand, and pricing. I know this is, they're expected to grow like everybody, you know, every, every chart you see has the line shooting up and to the right, but, but sort of like in terms of scale, like compared to current nickel, whatever, or cobalt demand for batteries, are we looking down the road at like 2x, 10x, 100x? Like what sort of, when people are daunted about the scale of these metals, like what do we mean by scale exactly? What are these projections? Yeah, so I think right now for scale, um, I think all electric vehicles are two to three percent of annual new car sales. Right. And automakers are saying that they're going to go all electric by 2035 or something. Um, and California wants to ban ICE vehicles by 2050. Um, Washington actually just said no new ICE vehicles sold after 2030. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's even more aggressive. And so to even meet that kind of target, you know, you're, you're talking some pretty dramatic scale ups of these upstream industries. In the lithium industry, lithium ion batteries were something about, you know, 30% of the total lithium market um, really before electric vehicles took off when it was really just consumer electronics. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, 65%, 67% of all lithium products go into lithium ion batteries um, with the remainder being like glass and pharmaceuticals and all of these other kinds of niche applications. You know, the lithium industry is really being driven by the lithium ion battery market. And the nickel and cobalt industries are, are a bit different, but um, that's just to give scale. Is it driving prices up? I mean, it, all this new demand for lithium, is the price going up? Has price become a problem yet just for the raw material? No, um, not, not for any of the raw materials, really. But right now, cobalt is really both the most expensive battery raw material and, you know, the most well-known to be sustainably problematic, um, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the human rights issues or um, the mines themselves. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of coverage on um, the issues with cobalt mining. You know, so there's been this effort over the past you know, several years to move away from cobalt because of these um, primarily price and and uh, sustainability reasons, but also because uh, there are simply better technologies out there than some of these high cobalt chemistries. Um, there are a ton of different battery chemistries and a ton of different lithium ion battery chemistries. Um, and there are strong advantages to uh, battery chemistries that don't use cobalt on the energy density front, um, on the cycle life front for some chemistries. You know, there is just a, a wide diversity of chemistries out there um, that really make it possible for automakers to pick and choose what types of lithium ion batteries they really want to use for which models. Let's get into some of those uh, variations. And I'm, I'm curious about the sort of variations in chemistry and also sort of like what performance uh, 
you know, sort of advantages and disadvantages come with these, with these different chemistries. So, you know, the two right now sort of dominant chemistries are, are, have been for a while are NMC and NCA. NMC has got nickel, manganese, and cobalt with its, with its lithium. And NCA has got cobalt and aluminum. Both those notably involve cobalt. <laughs> so is there, and, and I know there's been some effort just within those categories to sort of change the proportions and shrink cobalt. Who's doing that? And what does that involve? Like, what do you lose by losing cobalt? And what do you need to compensate? Pretty much everybody's working to, to reduce the amount of cobalt in these batteries. Um, the NCA technology is really almost exclusive to Panasonic and Tesla, mm. um, and they're currently really the only NCA mass producers. So NCA batteries are therefore used predominantly by Tesla for its electric vehicles, um, and they're not used at all in energy storage systems, grid energy storage systems. And that's because they're they're extremely high energy density, right? Is that is that something to do with the aluminum? Uh, yes, they are very high energy density. Um, and, you know, Panasonic's been, um, you know, the Tesla gigafactories have been struggling to keep up with Tesla demand um, for a few years now. So even if uh, there was demand for NCA batteries in energy storage systems, you know, there just isn't supply for that. Right. And, uh, you know, for Tesla in the NCA chemistry, um, they've been able to reduce the amount of cobalt in their batteries uh, from 20% to 10% now. Um, so they've been able to significantly reduce the amount of cobalt in those systems. Um, for NMC, you know, this is the most commonly used cathode formulation in lithium ion batteries today. Um, and you know, as you noted, there are many, many different NMC formulations with varying ratios of those key nickel, manganese, and cobalt components. And really, this is where, you know, to, to your question, um, it gets very interesting in terms of varying the amounts of cobalt. Um, so some of these, uh, the early uh, versions of NMC had equal amounts of nickel to manganese to cobalt, or NMC 111. And the technology has since progressed to now there's uh, a lot of, of talk and support um, for uh, high nickel cathodes, which would be um, eight parts nickel to one part manganese to one part cobalt. So that's, again, if you're thinking about the ratios, dramatically reducing the amount of cobalt there. And the benefit is that these high nickel cathodes enable much greater energy densities. Um, but the converse, the trade-off here, as you noted, is that these high nickel cathodes are a bit less thermally stable than the lower cobalt cathodes. And that can impact cycle life and safety. And so these high nickel cathodes, some of the reason why it's been um, a bit more difficult to commercialize these for um, mass-produced electric vehicles outside of China is that uh, some of these batteries need extra safety features at the pack level in order to um, counteract some of that uh, increased thermal instability. Right. And when you add cooling systems and whatnot, you add weight and thus lose a little bit of your energy density advantage, right? Exactly. But the NMC... 811, that's the thing now, right? I mean, it, was it GM that just sort of debuted that 
fairly recently, I thought it's it's all it's all the rage. Yeah, it's definitely a thing. Um, <laughs> it's been used in various electric vehicles in China um, for a year or two now, um, maybe maybe a bit longer. Um, and yeah, as you noted, it's it's definitely made its way outside of China as well. You know, even Volkswagen says that they're planning on using high nickel cathodes um, in their luxury vehicles. Um, but at the same time, you've also seen uh, really the rise of this other chemistry called LFP, um, which is lithium iron phosphate. Um, which has the lowest energy density compared to NMC and NCA, but um, it doesn't have cobalt. Um, and its core feedstocks, iron and phosphate, are you know, much easier to procure and much less vulnerable to price spikes than nickel, manganese, or cobalt. Right. And is, and is the loss of energy density for these LFP batteries, is that mainly because the loss of nickel, just because iron and phosphate are not as, just won't hold as many ions as nickel? Is, is it that simple? Um, it's, a, it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, <laughs> in that the, it has to do uh, partially with um, the cathode crystal formulations and, and really the cathode structure, which I really don't think I could explain at a uh, <laughs> intelligence level. You know, suffice it to say is that LFP is structured entirely differently from NMC and NCA. And uh, that different structure isn't able to hold as many uh, lithium ions in a small enough space as NMC and NCA. Um, so it is, and, you know, iron's heavy. Right. These are not necessarily light batteries, um, but there have been innovations in, uh, pack design. So, um, LFP, one of its advantages is that it does have better cycle life and it does have, um, higher safety performance than NMC and NCA. And so we saw last June that BYD released an, a new battery pack, um, architecture that, removed a bunch of the safety features that were in there for NMC and NCA. Um, and this pack architecture is specifically for LFP batteries in electric vehicles. Um, and at the pack level, these LFP batteries do achieve very competitive energy densities um, such that, you know, Tesla can use um, an LFP battery pack in its vehicles in China and have those vehicles uh, really achieve very competitive uh, ranges and um, energy densities compared to its NCA batteries back here. Right. I think in the in the Tesla's battery day uh, presentation, I believe the way they put it was that, that LFP, just the chemistry, has 50% of the energy density of their high nickel chemistry. But at the pack level, you get 75% of the range because of this, you know, the lack of safety and cooling and everything. And VW actually said something similar that they're going to use LFP in kind of their lower end sort of workaday, <laughs> workaday cars where you don't need energy density. Let's, let's just pause here and talk about energy density for a minute. Energy density, tell us what energy density is and why it's so prized in these applications. Yeah. So energy density is basically, um, very simply, 
the amount of energy you can cram into a particular kilogram or uh, volume of space. Um, so there's gravimetric energy density and volumetric energy density. And you want more energy in that set unit because then that extends the, the vehicle's range if you're talking about a vehicle application. Um, so higher energy density batteries are able to go further, um, dry further between charges. And range anxiety is really one of the key things that um, particularly Americans cite as one of the reasons why they're not interested in buying an electric vehicle. Um, they're concerned about not being able to um, easily go drive to visit family or friends or their annual trip to their favorite vacation spot um, or go skiing. Um, you know, there are so many different things to do in this country and it's, it's, some of them are pretty far away. And as the EV charging station networks, you know, those are continuing to be built out, um, but people are still citing range anxiety as one of the, the key inhibitors for them to actually commit to an electric vehicle. Right. So when we're talking about energy density, we're mostly talking about range. We're just talking about how much energy you can, you can cram into the battery in the same space. So let's, let's distinguish that just quickly. I, I had this in a separate section, but we're into it now. So let's distinguish that quickly from power density, this is, which, which is a slightly different thing. Can you tell us what power density is? Yes. You know, energy and power are like two sides of the same coin. So energy is basically the total amount of, you know, let's say electrons in a mm. given volume in a, in a battery, for example. Um, so your battery pack will have a very specific energy capacity. Um, power is it's the rate at which those electrons leave that battery. Um, to go do other things. Um, so power density really refers to how quickly can you get that energy out of the battery? You know, how, how fast do those electrons leave? Right. Oomph is, is, is the word I use. Yes, exactly. With lithium-ion batteries, you know, they're all, you know, they, they do have their own particular variations in power density. Um, but a lot of that, you know, it ends up being irrelevant when you put it into a pack. Um, you're seeing a lot of different pack architectures. You know, there are some high voltage pack architectures that are um, more efficient now. Um, and so, you know, the power density isn't really something that folks are optimizing for at the moment. Um, isn't that isn't that, though, what gives you your zero to 60 in in two seconds or whatever or whatever it is they're saying now? Uh, that really has more to it doesn't really have to do with the battery chemistry so much. And just like you can fast charge your car, um, you can definitely uh, discharge your battery pretty quickly if you want to. Um, it's just whether or not that harms your battery system. So there has been some research on better enabling fast charging for electric vehicles. Right. Is fast charging, I mean, it's just sort of the flip side of power density, right? It's like how much, how quickly you can release the energy and how quickly you can accept it. Is that sort of yep. Yep, those exactly. vary together? Those are this kind of the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the flip side is that if you discharge your battery super quickly, um, you can A, harm the lifetime of your battery um, and B, 
then that impacts your range because there's less, you know, there are fewer electrons in your battery then. So that's why, you know, your hybrid or, or whatever has that, or I guess my, my little Honda Insight does, um, it has an eco mode where it, uh, it controls how, how fast you can uh, accelerate and things like that. Oh, interesting. And it's a, and that's, uh, how is that eco? I see how it, is it just eco because it makes the battery last longer? Is that the, the yeah, source I of think the, of the I'm eco? pretty sure that's the only thing it does. <laughs> it does seem to impact my air conditioning too, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what, uh, what good eco mode does, except I get um, five stars if I do well. <laughs> well, um, so Obviously, energy density is dominating in the EV space since most of what people want out of an EV these days is is greater range. And that's kind of what people are pushing toward. So I'm sort of curious, EVs are by far the biggest market for these batteries, you know. So my sort of assumption is that whatever the EV market wants, that's what's going to drive innovation and sort of whatever the EV market ends up choosing is just going to scale up so big and get so cheap that it's going to be cheaper for other applications too. So I'm sort of curious, I guess what I'm asking is outside the EV space, are there, what are the other applications for lithium ion batteries? Maybe where energy density is not the prime consideration. Like are there, are there other factors that developers and researchers will be chasing sort of other performance characteristics other than energy density. Yeah, yeah. So I think really um, what's important to clarify is that, you know, range and energy density, those are what consumers want. Right. Um, but what automakers want is uh, reduction in costs. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and really that's what every sector wants. They don't want to pay too much for the battery. Um, so some of these high energy density uh, technologies um, that are really cutting edge and um, technologically incredible, some of them are really expensive and it's hard to see how those costs can come down. And so there will likely always be some kind of market for those extremely high energy density technologies, but uh, it's a still a huge open question on whether or not those technologies will even be used in electric vehicles beyond the luxury vehicle segment. Right. Um, you know, will you even really see those different chemistries in an economy car? Um, and I think from the past uh, couple battery power day announcements by Tesla and Volkswagen, you know, they're not planning on those high energy density batteries being used in most of their vehicles. They're looking at tailoring their vehicle uh, battery strategy to some of these more, um, the, the cheaper chemistries that are more robust to price spikes. And when you're thinking about, uh, to answer the other half of your question, when you're thinking about the impact of these automotive trends on other end uses for batteries, um, whether that's consumer electronics or energy storage, you see a, a couple different things. So for consumer electronics, that's a market that pretty much at this point scales with population growth. Everybody has a laptop, cell phone, yeah. some people have multiple. And uh, the battery technologies for those systems uh, are 
pretty stable. Those are not really uh, where a lot of the the cutting edge um, innovation really is at this point um, in the battery world. For the energy storage market, you know, the energy storage market uh, has fluctuated in what battery technologies it will use depending on what's available and how much they cost. And so this recent increase in LFP demand in the automotive industry, for example, has actually caused a shortage of LFP battery availability in the stationary storage sector. Hmm. And this is, you know, definitely temporary. Um, I don't really want to scare anybody. It's just manufacturing capacity, right? I mean, right. Right. And if you think about it, you know, electric vehicles, it's like 90% of the battery market. Yeah. So if you are a battery manufacturer and um, an automaker comes up to you and says, I want, you know, this huge amount of LFP batteries, you know, are you going to go fulfill that order or are you going to go, no, I'm, I'm committed to these other orders that are much smaller for these other particular applications. Sometimes they'll they'll commit to the the energy storage uh, contracts that they have, and sometimes they'll say, "Well, actually, you know, this is really tempting. I'm just going to go go with this bigger, much much bigger order." And there are a lot of efforts to increase uh, manufacturing capacity for LFP batteries at the moment, um, but um, for for the short term, you know, first half 2021, it's it's been basically impossible for um, stationary energy storage companies in the U.S. to order new LFP batteries for um, systems this year. Interesting. You know, let's talk about storage briefly. In EVs, obviously, energy density is a big thing because you want it to go a long way. What are the sort of performance characteristics that you're selecting for in, say, like a home, a home storage battery? a power wall or some variant. What do you want out of that battery? The fascinating thing with the grid storage sector is that unlike electric vehicles, every application is really different. Um, you know, comparing an economy car to a luxury car, you know, you might say, you know, one person does city driving and the other person likes to do long treks or whatever. Um, but comparing a home energy storage system to a utility scale solar plus storage system that's, you know, a gigawatt in scale. Um, Those are completely different systems uh, with completely different demands and needs. You know, that utility scale system is probably going to want to cycle once a day, twice a day, maybe. Um, And that's, that's a lot more often than you would charge your car. Um, that's pretty right. heavy use case. Um, whereas, you know, and, you know, in the U.S., we have a lot of land here. Um, so footprint isn't really a huge right. issue. Um, whereas in your home, you really want a small system that's very right. safe because it's in your house. And um you want to make sure, you know, sometimes ideally it's paired with uh, with a solar roof. And I think uh, a lot of, I think Tesla right now has has just said that they aren't selling any um, home batteries without solar. Um, oh, but, you know, that's, that's going to charge and discharge probably not um, as 
uh, as deeply as a, a uh, mm, commercial industrial right. or a utility scale battery. So for a big grid battery, then maybe you don't care so much about energy density because space is not as prized like volume. It's okay to be a little bigger and it's okay to be a little heavier as long as you're very resilient, right? High cycle life. So what's the, like, if I'm going shopping for a battery purely on cycle life, like where do I look? Who's the leader there? Yeah. I mean, so some of it's also just discharge rates and, um, you know, the, really the only two battery chemistries right now, um, that are really used in stationary energy storage applications are LFP chemistries and um, NMC chemistries, and not necessarily high nickel NMC, um, you know, these 811 formulations. Um, it's like NMC 532 or um, 111. You know, they're, they're not the, uh, the ultra high density, lower cycle life chemistries. And among those three chemistries, you know, if you're talking the, the two different NMC formulations and the LFP, that pretty much covers the vast majority of stationary storage systems. Um, there's much less diversity in, in chemistries um, mm. in the stationary energy storage market, um, in part because, you know, there's different needs than the, than, um, the mobility market and a lot of the efforts to make new technologies uh, for lithium ion batteries are focused on the needs of the mobility sector and not necessarily the needs of the stationary energy storage sector. And so you see these non-lithium alternative batteries, you know, they're almost exclusively targeting the stationary energy storage sector um, because there are so many discrete niche applications that um, maybe lithium ion isn't best suited for. And in an ideal world, one of these non-lithium alternatives um, would be able to find a place in it. So an example there is some of this long duration seasonal storage um, right. that people are talking a lot about now. And California in particular has you know, been supporting um, through grants and um, various community choice aggregators are are supporting through RFPs. You know those types of seasonal duration, you know, really really low discharge um, systems, enormous systems for um, meeting those various occasional needs. Uh, that's not appropriate. Right, enormous systems that that may only charge and discharge like once a. Season, yeah. <laughs> Once every couple of months, yeah. And so for those systems, you know, lithium-ion batteries you know, are way too expensive. Right. <laughs> um, right. You could hypothetically, you could still do it with a lithium-ion battery. It's technically feasible, um, but you would never want to. It's just it would be extraordinarily expensive. And so you are seeing a bunch of different technology developers. Um, developing entirely different systems for specifically long duration storage um, that are using um, various different kinds of low cost feedstocks and they're claiming we'll be able to to meet those types of needs uh, at uh, reasonable um, capital expenditures. 
Right. Let's return to EVs real quick and look at a few of the um, sort of more hyped cutting edge technologies that are coming along, see if we can figure out if any of them are really going to change the game, as they as they say. <laughs> um, let's talk about one that I think everybody's heard about at this point, which is solid, solid state batteries. Maybe just tell us, like, what is a solid state battery and why would you want to make one? And is it, in fact, going to, I mean, I've been immersed in batteries for weeks here, and I have read an enormous array of very strong opinions about the future of solid state batteries, <laughs> all of which are mutually contradictory. So maybe you can just give us your sense of sort of what is solid state? Why is it so hyped? And will it revolutionize batteries all over again? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is a, definitely a, a variety of opinions here. Um, and really what solid state refers to really just means that the electrolyte and separator in an all-solid-state battery are replaced with one solid material that uh, you know is non-flammable, that doesn't use um, the same materials as today's uh, incumbent electrolytes and separators do. Um, yeah, we should just pa pause and note that most of the incumbent electrolytes are liquid, some some form yes. of goop, liquid or gel, which tend to be. Um, you know, flammable among other things, which is part of the problem. Yes, that, that's really where the safety concerns around lithium-ion batteries come from. It's because of these flammable electrolytes. So um, you replace the electrolyte with a solid material that obviously gets you safety, since the solid material won't catch fire. But what else? What else does it do? That's really it. That's the. That's um, <laughs> that's it. That's, that's the, the definition it. of a solid state battery. Don't they also improve? Don't they also improve energy density, though? I, I mean, well, isn't that part of the? So this is where it gets tricky, um, because for a long time people thought that in order to use a lithium metal anode, which is really a um, much higher energy density than uh, the, today's incumbent graphite anodes. So in order to use these incredible um, lithium metal anodes, you really need a solid electrolyte because lithium metal anodes, uh, when they charge and discharge, lithium uh, plates back onto the anode. And so there is a risk of the lithium plating unevenly on that anode. Dendrites. Mm-hmm. Yep. And those, <laughs> those branch-like dendrites can short the system and you know, cause a battery fire. You really don't want dendrites. This was a, an interesting fact I just learned in my research, which I'll insert here, is that using solid lithium metal as an anode actually preceded, came before lithium-ion batteries. And it was these, these problems you're talking about, the formation of dendrites and such, that actually led researchers to say, well, let's put graphite on top of the lithium, and that way the ions can nestle in the graphite or intercalate in the graphite, and, and they, they won't be able to hold as many, but they'll be stable, and it, and it, won't, um, it won't have these problems of dendrites, and et cetera. So it's, it's sort of interesting that these solid metal 
anodes are coming back after like they were around in the 1970s and they're coming back it seems like everything comes back eventually in the battery world yes <laughs> yes um and dendrites you know lithium metal lithium metal anodes are really you know that is really the key to maximizing energy density in lithium ion batteries is using lithium metal anodes and for a long time a lot of people thought that you could only use them with a solid electrolyte and what we're finding now is that that's not necessarily true. Um, you're starting to see a lot of uh, other startups that are using lithium metal anodes with a liquid electrolytes, um, like Scion Power has been doing it for a long time, and Cuberg, which was just acquired by Northvolt. Um, you know these these battery developers aren't using a solid electrolyte and are still achieving the same types of cell level energy density that the solid state battery developers using lithium metal anodes are also achieving. Well, why wouldn't you want to use a solid electrolyte though? Like, is there, are there considerations governing why, why you choose one electrolyte or the other? I don't really. Well, so the solid electrolyte benefit is that added safety, right? You're not going to get that added safety with any kind of liquid electrolyte. Right. So why isn't everybody, I guess I'm just wondering, why isn't everybody sort of herding to solid electrolytes if they're, if they're safer? Is there, a, is there a drawback of some kind? Yes, there are a few. And uh, one of them is, you know, the first solid electrolytes were made of this polymer called polyethylene oxides, I think, PEO electrolytes. And these um, are solid. They're actually in use in vehicles today and have been for a while um, in, in uh, a few ride-sharing vehicles, uh, I think in, in Paris, but they need to be heated up in order to actually achieve uh, the kinds of ionic conductivities in order to basically allow the battery to charge and discharge um, efficiently. And that external heater impacts the, uh, the total battery efficiency. If you have to use part of the battery output to heat itself, you're right. having less battery to drive the vehicle. And so that's really, that's one main issue with solid electrolytes is this room temperature ionic conductivity is difficult to achieve. Um, it's difficult to make a solid state battery that can charge and discharge at reasonable rates at room temperature without an external heater. Interesting. Is there such a thing in the world yet? Is that, I mean, I assume researchers are on that. <laughs> yes. So that is, um, that's really one of the first things that uh, a lot of these solid state battery developers that you're seeing today um, have been focused on and working on um, since they were founded. Um, that's, that was really their first starting goal. And so companies like um, solid power and ionic materials um, they both claim to be able to, you know, have very competitive um, charge discharge rates at room temperature. The other factor is, you know, with any new battery technology, it's going to have a lower cycle life than one of these incumbents. And this is the case for solid state batteries, for lithium metal anodes, for um, some of these high manganese uh, cathode chemistries that you're hearing about now, you know, all of them, these are all new materials that are still in their development stages. And so because of that, you know, they're not 
100% optimized for um, full functionality yet. And that's just a matter of like learning by doing, right? Just making a bunch of them and figuring out incremental improvements. Exactly. Science is a slow process. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of these batteries are only able to achieve 500 cycles, for example, which is much less than, you know, the thousand cycles plus that you would really need to be qualified for use in an electric vehicle. And, you know, all of these companies have been getting much better over time. Um, but that's still a weak area for solid state batteries. Mm. So it sounds like a lot of the hype around solid state is less about the solid electrolyte in particular and more about the combination of a solid electrolyte with lithium metal as an anode. Exactly. That's what people think is going to be the next revolution or whatever. Right. So if you take a look at QuantumScape, for example, QuantumScape uses this lithium metal anode and it claims that it has spent um, these past many years of its development, really optimizing and, you know, solving the dendrite issue. But QuantumScape uses a solid ceramic separator. It also uses some liquid electrolyte at the cathode. So it's not what I would call an all-solid state battery. It is a lithium metal anode battery, but not all solid state. And it's you know, because it uses a solid ceramic separator, it can be lumped into some of these semi-solid, you know, these different terms kind of get conflated. Semi-solid state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, really. So the lithium metal anode, you know, that is the part that enables this huge energy density increase that QuantumScape has been able to show through its its data that it shared. It's a little weird to me then that solid state gets all the hype since it's really the lithium metal. It's the metal anode that's really giving you the sexy kind of performance boost that you want. And the solid state electrolyte is a little bit of a footnote to that. Why, why did things work out that way? Is it just people not being careful with their terminology? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of an artifact um, from when people thought that you needed a solid electrolyte for a lithium metal anode. Mm. And so solid state battery really referred to the combination lithium metal anode and solid electrolyte. But you're seeing companies now that are developing lithium metal anode batteries without solid electrolytes. And you're seeing solid electrolyte developers developing batteries with a graphite anode. Um, so it's not really the uniform term that people assumed it would be when it started becoming, you know, lexicon uh, two to three years ago. I'm just going to clarify this here for readers who are confused. You have a lithium metal anodes which can be coupled with either solid or liquid electrolytes. And then you have solid electrolytes, which can be coupled with either lithium metal anodes or traditional graphite anodes. Exactly. So they're sort of, they're separate and you got a, a matrix of possibilities. But the, but the solid state that everybody's excited about, the one that's, that's supposedly setting off this whole new round of innovation and everything, that's mostly about the, the lithium metal, metal anode involved. Yes. Yes. And so the lithium metal anode holds more lithium ions. And if you can overcome the dendrite formation, 
problem. You just get a ton more, they're saying double the energy density, which would mean theoretically double the range for an electric vehicle. And there's a bunch of these that are supposedly just over the horizon, right? Like mid, mid 2020s is all the really sexy hyped stuff still out a few years or are any of these in use yet? Yeah. You know, a lot of these different battery technologies are still pretty far away from commercialization. So, you know, some companies are probably the most aggressive companies are saying that they'll be able to use solid state batteries in an electric vehicle by 2025. Um, and that's that's pretty aggressive when you're thinking about how long it takes to get a battery qualified for um, for use in a vehicle by an automaker. Um, and also when you're thinking about, you know, the, the scale and production, if you're going from a pilot right. plant to a mass produced vehicle, you know, that's a huge jump in in production uh, capacity. And that's really part of, you know, there's a whole different hard part of this whole equation, <laughs> right? You know, you can make the best battery in the world at lab scale, but that doesn't really mean anything if you can't make it in a, uh, a cell that can integrate into a pack for an electric vehicle and then produce, you know, the same high quality battery over and over and over again for many vehicles. That's a huge stretch. Yeah. One of the, one of the, sort of considerations I keep stumbling into is, you know, you've got this, at this point, a pretty enormous manufacturing capacity built up for conventional lithium ion batteries, which means just a lot of learning by doing a lot of scale and just a lot of built infrastructure. And so one of the things I see a lot is if you're going to get a competitor to conventional lithium ion batteries, it's probably going to have to be able to make use of existing manufacturing capacity. In other words, like you can't just require a whole new set of factories, whole new, whole new kinds of factories. So I'm wondering of these kind of solid state batteries, are any of them, are they going to require new factories or are they going to be able to make use of existing kind of manufacturing techniques? These startups are really pr pursuing mostly one of two different strategies. So the first strategy is really becoming a material supplier for uh, incumbent cell manufacturers and producing their solid-state batteries on today's manufacturing lines. And as you said, you know, that really is able to leverage existing infrastructure, which is phenomenal. Um, you can really access that very quickly if you can integrate your cell into uh, or integrate your technology into these manufacturing lines. You know, that's a, it's a great way to be able to make your, your batteries, um, a lot of your batteries quickly. Um, also, some of these manufacturing lines, you know, these cost quite a lot of money to build. Um, you know, cell manufacturers, automakers aren't going to you know, most of them aren't going to want to pay for new factories that require new facilities when you have um, governments really uh, throwing billions of dollars at a single factory. You know, if you consider all the amounts of money that the European Union and uh, various European countries have given to cell manufacturers to build factories within Europe, um, you know, it's incredible. You know, so that's one strategy. The other strategy is... If the battery company is unable to integrate its 
technology with today's uh, manufacturing lines, there's really no other option except for that company to become a cell manufacturer themselves and build the relevant uh, manufacturing lines using whatever specialized equipment that they need. Um, you know, they're going to have to do that themselves. And that, to me, just sounds daunting. <laughs> I mean, to me, it almost sounds more challenging than the sort of scientific work of developing a new chemistry, like the just the nuts and bolts work of becoming a large-scale manufacturer chasing this this other manufacturing process that's been around for decades and has been coming down in cost for decades. I mean, is it, it do you see any of those possibly getting anywhere or succeeding? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to to pick favorites or say that anybody's absolutely not going to succeed because, you know, I could absolutely be wrong and I don't want to don't want to insult anybody. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think one of the factors that is supporting uh, groups in the second category that want to make batteries themselves, because you're right, this is in a lot of ways even more difficult than the actual battery development in the first place. Um, but there are huge amounts of money out there uh, looking to support solid state battery development, whether you're talking about automakers or cell manufacturers or chemicals suppliers, or now, you know, financial institutions, you know, SPACs are here for at least the near term. And uh, the amount of money available to companies looking to go public by merging with a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC is just phenomenal. You have a valuation of, you know, a billion dollars, which used to be a lot of money for a startup. Um, <laughs> and suddenly, you know, overnight go to, um, you know, $10 billion valuation. Yeah, it's got a, a, a bit of a bubble feeling as I read around around solid state. Do you think that's right? Do you think there's going to be some some such a high profile crash and burns happening at some point? I mean, I think it really depends on it depends on the company. You know, not all the SPACs, you know, the, the, the companies in the electric mobility space that have chosen to go public this way, you know, they're not all equal. Right. There are some companies that are already making revenue and that, um, you know, they have, they haven't really changed their business plan at all since going public. They're just, um, continuing ahead and saw an opportunity to make a lot of money really quickly. And who am I to blame them for that? Um, and I actually, you know, I support some of that strategy in part because, uh, you know, there have been a lot of government support for electric mobility technologies in a lot of countries, but not really in the United States over the past four years since 2016. Mm. Um, and so a lot of these developers and these companies that are operating in this space, if they're targeting a, a market um, that they're expecting will grow with these kinds of exponential rates that automakers are expecting, you know, they want to grow quickly in order to meet that demand. And uh, going public via SPAC, you know, is a quick way to make that money to scale your process and go go get that market. And you don't want to miss that opportunity. Just a lot of money floating out there. Yeah. 
let's talk about one uh, or one or two more of the areas of innovation. We hit sort of solid lithium metal anodes, which gets you a bunch more energy density. We talked about solid electrolytes, uh, which gets you safety, uh, no more no more fires. Uh, one of the other ones I see come up a lot that Tesla is leaning heavily on and that and that I know some people are very excited about is uh, using silicon as an anode. Can you tell us a little bit about about who's doing that and yeah. why? So silicon is a little bit different from these other different technologies in that it is much closer to commercialization than either solid electrolytes or lithium metal anodes. Um, you, know, you mean silicon anodes specifically? Yes. yes. Um, and really, when I, I say silicon anodes, um, for the most part, I'm meaning silicon graphite composites. Um, these won't really ah. be pure silicon anodes. Um, you know, I, I've really yet to see a pure silicon anode battery that is you know, cost competitive with lithium ion batteries. Um, but by adding what, what's the like what what do you what goes wrong when you <laughs> like why is the graphite still in there what goes wrong when you add more and more silicon like why is it mostly difficult? it's not necessarily that it's um, you know because all silicon batteries have existed for a while it's just that uh, graphite's way cheaper and so if you can use some percent silicon to increase the energy capacity of your anode. And, um, you know, silicon containing, the more silicon you put in your anode, you also are able to faster charge your battery. Um, You know, so if you're able to use a relatively high percentage of silicon in your anode, um, but still have some graphite in there, you can get some of the benefits of using a silicon anode without necessarily the extremely high costs. And does silicon as an anode work the same way lithium metal as an anode does in the sense that the ions plate onto it? Is that also, or, or is it intercalation? No, it's intercalation um, for, for these silicon anodes. And I, I kind of skipped over it, but um, there are some technical difficulties with silicon. You know, with that intercalation, uh, these silicon anodes do tend to swell. Um, and yes. that swelling can crack, uh, certain parts of the battery. Um, you know, it, it can, uh, impede and, and change different coatings that you might have on, um, the, the silicon anode particles and swelling isn't good. These silicon developers, um, for batteries, all of them claim to have addressed the swelling in, in some regard. Um, you know, whether they're doing all silicon, pure silicon anodes or silicon graphite composites, they're all looking to address that main issue. Um, but really, all of these developers have their own particular kind of material. You know, there isn't really one dominant silicon graphite, you know, material that's in use out there. Um, there are a wide variety of you know, companies using silicon metal and some using silicon oxide and others using silicon nanoparticles. It's just uh, a very diverse field of a lot of different technologies. And and didn't Tesla announce something kind of new and fancy at, at, in its 2020 battery day? It's going to use just 
unprocessed metallurgical silicon, right? So you cut out the processing step, just use raw silicon. And instead of trying to mix all these chemicals in to prevent swelling, it's just going to design the cell. Of course, you know, I have this 101 level understanding of all this, so I could be getting all this wrong, but it's basically going to design the cell to accommodate swelling instead of trying to prevent swelling. It's just going to design around it and allow, and even in some ways get benefits out of swelling. I don't know if you know any of the details of what they're doing. That could be a, a horrendous summary. Yeah, I mean, I don't think really anybody outside of Tesla knows exactly what Tesla's working on. Um, you know, Tesla has a, a knack for making these large announcements with very sparse technical details. Um, (laughs) and so I also am looking forward to seeing what they, uh, are talking about. Um, I, I would assume that the combination of all of the different technologies that Tesla discussed at its battery day, you know, I think, Elon Musk said something along the lines of he's expecting this to be, you know, a three year plan until it's, you know, these technologies are in use. Um, that seems unnecessarily aggressive. <laughs> and, you know, I wouldn't consider That's kind of their stock and yeah, trade, though. I mean, I wouldn't consider it a failure of Tesla or that Tesla was disappointing me in some way if they took a few extra years to, to do these things. Um, and I think that, you know, we'll, We'll probably end up seeing that on, you know, a more of a 2025 or 2026 timeframe. Right. So just to summarize then on the, on, on the silicon, um, you get more silicon on your anode, you get higher energy density because you're, you're housing more ions basically, but silicon's expensive and graphite is cheap. So the effort here is to figure out a way to use more silicon thus increasing energy density without unduly increasing costs. Right? Is that a fair fair summary? Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. These are, uh, to my mind, the big ones within kind of the lithium-ion family that we've hit here, the sort of lithium metal anode, solid-state electrolytes, silicon anode, high nickel cathodes, LFP with iron, as uh, uh, the iron rather than the the manganese and the cobalt. Those are, to my mind, the big sort of competitive or or maybe competitive, going to be competitive (laughs) uh, uh, ones within the lithium family. But there are, as you say, these other chemistries that that if you talk to people working on them, (laughs) they say, you know, have have advantages. One of them is zinc. So just sort of using zinc as as I understand it, just substituting zinc for lithium, like zinc and using zinc ions rather than lithium ions. Do you have any thoughts about zinc batteries, whether they're going anywhere? Um, zinc ions specifically? Yeah. I mean, so zinc batteries, from my understanding, uh, and there are a lot of zinc battery companies out there. Um, so it's possible that... Um, you know, I might not be speaking exactly to the same type of um, market that that your contact is, um, but you know, most zinc batteries are being developed for stationary energy storage applications. And similar to kind of what I said about silicon anodes, every zinc battery company has their own particular technology. There isn't one 
zinc technology um, that's outstripping all of the others. Um, you know, EOS, another company that went public by us back, um, they're developing a zinc battery for stationary storage applications. Um, I think they're using uh, some kind of air cathode. If I, I could be getting that wrong. And then there are other zinc battery companies that are doing using a flow battery architecture, which is usually more common for vanadium batteries. There are just so many different zinc chemistries out there. You know, I would be interested to see, you know, how these different systems um, perform in the field. Um, a lot of these yes. different technologies are still lab scale. EOS obviously isn't. Um, but, uh, you know, how these perform in the field, if they're able to uh, increase manufacturing scales and compete um, on costs with a lithium ion battery is another area. You know, a lot of these zinc batteries, um, they do use much cheaper chemical feedstocks than lithium ion batteries. But um, because they don't have the same kinds of manufacturing economies of scale as lithium ion batteries, uh, it's still more expensive as a system to deploy right now. One of the zinc guys I talked to, uh, his his company's big scheme is he says he can slipstream into a lead acid manufacturing plant and just use the same machinery as a lead acid manufacturing plant. And he wants to go after lead acid batteries, which are still a $45 billion global market. They're not gone by any <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. He wants to scale up that way. First, eat up the rest of the lead acid batteries and then start uh, competing against lithium ion after that. So, yeah, there's just a huge variety of, of ways you could go about that. And also sodium. I don't know if this is even worth saying anything about, but I've also read that you can substitute uh, sodium, which is basically salt, <laughs> substitute those for lithium compounds and make sodium ion batteries. Have you have, have any of those like poked up onto the actual market yet? Yeah. You know, I think there's there's really one um, leading sodium battery startup for uh, electric mobility applications called Feradion, um, based out of the UK. They're targeting both grid storage applications and a lot of that lead acid replacement, as well as low-cost e-mobility applications like two-wheelers, for example. Um, and, you know, again, I think that this is a really interesting and compelling um, kind of technology. Uh, but going back even to the QuantumScape example, the hard part is really the commercialization in some regards. It's not, not really the hard part, but, um, you know, it's a different problem and it's a different way of thinking about the same technology. And sometimes it's, you know, it takes one group of people to develop the technology and another group of people to commercialize it. They're two right. very different problems um, that are both you know, incredibly difficult. Well, this brings me to sort of an overarching question. In, in some sense, this was sort of the question that ended up motivating my whole dive into batteries in the first place, which is you can find a lot of people in this space who will say, yes, there's all these interesting new technologies sort of out there innovating, out there on the cutting edge, finding little 
tiny niches. And there are plenty of batteries that can outperform lithium ion on a particular metric, you know, this metric or that metric, or that can have some performance advantages. But it's that second part. It's commercializing and scaling up and, and sort of conventional lithium ion batteries with conventional lithium ion manufacturing capacity have just gotten such a head of steam, have gotten so big scaled up so much and are falling in cost, you know, all the time as manufacturing capacity doubles and doubles again, that, that it's that lead, not sort of the scientific lead, but the commercialization head start that's just unbridgeable, basically. Like <laughs> there's, no, there's no new battery technology that's going to perform so much better that it can just sort of magically do that scale, especially when you're chasing a receding target, right? Because the lithium-ion batteries are forever getting cheaper and cheaper. And, and as I say in my post, this is somewhat of a parallel to the PV in solar, right? Like there's all these other solar technologies that can outperform, you know, conventional solar PV on this or that metric, but just the amount of like scale and manufacturing scale that PV has at its back is just like, Given it an unbridgeable head start on that big question, like, uh, and I guess it just comes down to how much you rate the difficulty of this commercialization. So, do you? So, any of these sort of innovations we've talked about, you know, your solid state, your different kinds of anodes. What's your sense of whether they have a chance, or do you think that your sort of standard lithium-ion batteries just have that scale advantage? That's unbeatable at this point? No, I definitely think that there is um, absolutely room for improvement. The difference between, uh, you know, what technologies are likely to succeed and be implemented on those commercial scales and compete at those costs, you know, the technologies that are able to do that will be the technologies that enable cost reductions in other ways. Um, whether it's because they're using cheaper feedstocks or able to integrate into um, incumbent manufacturing lines, whether that's lead acid or lithium ion, um, you know, leveraging the existing infrastructure is huge. And, um, you know, reducing the cost of batteries is uh, going to be critical for enabling some of these EV adoption rates that these automakers are expecting. You know, the battery makes up, I think, is 50% roughly of total cost for an electric vehicle. Oh, wow. And so in order to really That's crazy. make electric vehicles affordable for everybody and not just, you know, people who want to go buy Teslas, you know, you really need to bring those costs down. You also need to be able to scale those supply chains for lithium too. You know, lithium batteries right. have... Uh, you know, these current great economies of scale, but uh, those are going to need to increase even further. And, uh, you know, are the current processes really robust enough to accommodate some of that demand uh, that we're forecasting for 2030, 2040, 2050? You know, there are definitely open questions out here that um, some of these non-lithium battery alternatives uh, could be able to take advantage of. So there, there's at least the possibility then, there's at least an open possibility that some of these supply kind of materials 
supply constraints could inhibit lithium ion growth enough to open a market you know a possibility in the market for these other chemistries sure sure um i do think that whatever you know slowdown in lithium ion um supply chain if there is one you know that would only be temporary you know lithium ion batteries are just so good at what they do and there's already so much money in here that i right. you know it makes sense to simply fix the problem rather than pivot to an entirely different technology but i mean for Alternative technology developers, it's really critical to make sure that you're competing with um, the lithium-ion battery technology that you plan to compete with in 2025 or 2030 or whenever you plan to enter the market, and not today's lithium-ion battery technologies or yesterday's lithium-ion battery technologies. You know, as you know, these alternatives keep developing, lithium-ion batteries are going to keep getting better. You know, we're seeing new pack architectures, new cell architectures, new um, battery management systems that are able to increase the battery, the usable battery capacity of an incumbent lithium-ion battery um, without really any changes to chemistry. You just make the... Oh, just the software? Like new, better material? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So there are just all of these other technologies that are surrounding the lithium-ion battery industry that, um, you know, are making lithium-ion batteries even more competitive and even more um, cost-effective and lowering, you know, pack costs and cell costs to uh, levels that are useful for economy cars. You know, we're just seeing improvements really all around. I was going to ask this later, but but this is a good segue into this is, um, you know, I read one of these reports, like the first thing I would say is just, I've never looked into a market that is so, I don't even know what the word is, dynamic, uncertain. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're trying to, like, I want to compete against the lithium ion batteries of 2025, like who in God's name knows what's, <laughs> what that's going to be, who knows what you're competing with. It's just such an incredible, like, there's so much flailing around in the dark here. Nobody, there's so little consensus about What's going to happen? It's a little, it's a little crazy. But um, in terms of lithium supply, I wanted to, I wanted to hit on that again before we go. We we mentioned that cobalt needs to go, and I think that's, you know, I think everybody agrees. The battery makers agree that over time, cobalt needs to be shrunk and eliminated. But what about lithium supply itself? I know I, I, what my sort of vague sense from what reading around is there's plenty of lithium in the world. So like absolute supply is not the constraint, but digging it up is pretty gross the way we currently do it and pretty limited. So, you know, sort of what are the, what's underway to sort of address those supply possible constraints? Yeah. Um, so you're right. There is, there's tons of lithium in the world. We're not really at risk of a lithium shortage by any means right. um, in terms of pure natural resources. It's really about uh, being able to get that lithium out of those natural resources in a cost competitive way and in a way that you're producing a battery quality lithium product. Um, Lithium-ion batteries require an insanely high, um, high-quality kind of lithium. 
Um, and there have been a lot of uh, junior lithium companies looking to try to tap into the growing lithium ion battery market, um, but who have struggled in one way or another to uh, produce a product that is acceptable to the lithium ion battery industry. Um, whether or not it's, you know, it's low purity or um, it has certain impurities that are really toxic to a lithium ion battery. It's hard to produce a high quality lithium product for lithium ion batteries. There are really only a handful of companies out there that do it. Uh, and so making sure that those companies, you know, are able to scale their production um, in a manner that uh, they can address some of these uh, these lithium ion battery demands of 2025, you know, that's definitely a huge concern, especially since lithium prices were so low for so long, really, um, for the past uh, year or two. Are they rising now? Yes, they are coming back now, um, which is great because it was really getting impossible to imagine how they could go lower. <laughs> but they are coming back. And then added um, capital for the lithium companies will be really crucial for funding these capacity expansions. You know, a lot of these expansions take a long time to build. And even once they're built, it can take a really long time to actually have the lithium go through the whole process. You know, these brine ponds in South America, the way that these ponds work is that you very simply slowly evaporate the water off of the brine. Yeah, really slowly. I read about <laughs> this. I was like, that's a crazy industrial process where there's just weeks of stuff sitting yeah. there. Yeah, and it's really sensitive. It's really hard to get that right. <laughs> um, those evaporation ponds are extremely, you know, they, they sound really basic and really simple. You just evaporate the water. But, um, right. you know, it's not so simple. Um, it's a very delicate balance. And uh, it's just incredible that, you know, your smartphone or your your fancy electric vehicle, you know, whatever, you know, the lithium in there is a high probability that came from 18 months of evaporating in South America. <laughs> right. It's hard to adjust the supply remotely on a timely basis. Yeah, you can't really accelerate. <laughs> if it involves 18, 18 <laughs> months of, of uh, evaporation. Yeah. So, I mean, so then the other side of this is that, um, you know, in Australia, uh, that's where a lot of the other lithium comes from. It comes from really hard rock mining. That doesn't rely on evaporation at all. It does have um, significantly higher carbon dioxide emissions than the brine process. Mm. Um, so there is a trade-off for, you can go faster, but that requires a lot more energy, much faster. You can't just use solar power. It's a lot of, it's a lot of carbon emissions. It just seems like, I mean, this is my, uh, you know, liberal arts majors untutored gut <laughs> response to all this, but this just seems like an area that like surely science can do better than that. Like, it just seems like something that like we haven't put a lot of, a ton of, research into yet and surely we're going to come up with something better in the long term if we need this like whatever 10x 50x of lithium supply 
surely we're going to figure out something better than 18 months of evaporating in a Absolutely. pond. Is there, is there anything on the, is there anything on the horizon that that's more sophisticated? Totally. Than and, you know, I think the reason why we haven't seen a lot of those technologies being used commercially yet is because, you know, there wasn't really a need until like five years ago. So, uh, it, you know, again, science takes a long time and uh, it's taken, it takes a while to develop an entirely new technology, but there are um, quite a few different options out there right now that, you know, are these technology developers targeting the lithium industry and looking to um, really extract lithium from these natural resources at a uh, lower energy um, capacity um, needed and reduced water consumption and in a shorter time frame uh, with low CO2 emissions. You know, those are all crucial factors for these next generation lithium extraction technologies. Um, but there are quite a few out there. And just quickly on nickel, is what's the story on nickel? Is it roughly the same? Like there's there's enough in the world. <laughs> it's just capacity getting nickel it out. Nickel is a bit of a different story because the nickel industry is much much larger than the lithium industry, and lithium ion batteries make up a very small part of that nickel demand. Uh, nickel's used in a lot of alloys. Um, I think it's used in steel manufacturing, for example, making sure that there's enough nickel also for the lithium ion batteries, you know, it's a tough situation to to really think about. Because it sounds like um, uh, Elon Musk is borderline desperate <laughs> to, to find nickel. Like he's out there saying on calls, like, please start a nickel company. I will give you a guaranteed 30-year contract. Like someone, please give me nickel. Yeah. And I, I honestly don't entirely know what he's talking about there. Um, <laughs> it, maybe he wants somebody to mine nickel specifically for him. And that's really where he's coming from rather than necessarily for the steel industry, which is, you know, much bigger than the lithium mine battery industry. Um, maybe it will just you know tesla's march towards vertical integration yeah maybe it will just open a nickel mine yeah so i think you know when with regards to really all of these different technologies one of the ways that companies like tesla are looking to um, address some of these long-term needs is through battery recycling because you can recover a lot of these metals through those processes. What a great segue. This was my <laughs> next question. This is something I feel guilty about that I'm not actually writing much about in my series. Um, and this is, you know, environmentally a huge part of the story. So let's let's talk about recycling then. Like right now, you know, the sort of amount of lithium ion batteries that need to be recycled right now is relatively low because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the ones that were in the first EVs are still in, still going. So the problem we're facing now for lithium-ion battery disposal is just a fraction of what's going to happen. You know, once EVs are fifty percent or one hundred percent of cars, rather than two percent. So, what is the current state of lithium-ion battery recycling? Is it is it done? And what can and can't be recovered from them? And like, how environmentally gross? Is yeah. all this, I guess I'm asking. Yeah. So um, there are 
some battery recycling facilities that are operational today um, for lithium-ion batteries. But what most of them are doing right now are basically making some of the, the scrap materials for manufacturing back into a usable um, feedstock for lithium-ion batteries. Um, so that scrap recycling is uh, where a lot of battery recycling is today. And that's great, but it's very different from uh, the processes required for breaking down a fully realized lithium-ion battery into its constituent components. Exactly what you said, there really aren't too many lithium-ion batteries that have reached their end of life right now. Um, so we haven't really seen uh, any of these major lithium-ion battery recycling facilities um, really be profitable yet um, because, uh, because of that very small, you know, total volume of end-of-life batteries. But, uh, you know, if you can extract nickel, manganese, cobalt, lithium from these batteries today and recycle them into the, the value chain, you know, that would be an incredible uh, feedstock for lithium-ion batteries. Right. Um, and some have argued that uh, that could even be a higher quality feedstock than virgin materials because you know exactly all of the inputs going into that system as opposed <laughs> right. to, you know, a rock you dug up from the ground. But it's difficult. Um, my sense is that it, one of the difficulties is that, the, that these are compounds, right? These are not sort of discrete metals on different parts of the battery. They're, they're compounds. So there's some chemistry involved in pulling that apart. Isn't there, there is. Um, I think the, the, leading different, the leading process that I am not technical enough to go into too much detail about is called hydrometallurgical. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it is very energy intensive and does require quite a bit of sulfuric acid, um, to break down those components. Um, but I think the, the two areas, um, to my mind, um, that are most, uh, pressing right now about battery recycling processes is that, you know, half the cost of battery recycling comes from the logistics of getting the battery out of the car and to the recycling facility and then getting the recycled material to the cathode producer um, or to whoever the customer is. Those logistics costs are hugely expensive um, and, uh, you know, are definitely going to have them down. That's the kind of problem we know how to solve, though, right? I mean, those are solvable problems. They are problems. solvable problems. They require cooperation. Um <laughs> uh oh, maybe we maybe we don't know how to. <laughs> so, for example, some European countries qualify, you know, a lithium-ion battery, a used lithium-ion battery, as hazardous waste versus some as, um, you know, some other kind of category, and that creates paperwork. And I had no idea paperwork could be so expensive, but apparently it is. And you know, I guess aside from logistics, the other part is that lithium-ion batteries today are not designed for recycling. Um, they're not designed yet to be taken out of a car very easily. It's really difficult to get it out of a car. Right. So, this, yeah, I was going to ask whether, like, 
the recycling concerns are sufficiently large or pressing enough to actually be feeding back into the kind of innovation and design of batteries? Like, is anyone trying to make these batteries more recyclable? Is that a real effort yet? Not that I have particularly heard of. Um, although I think, you know, from a theoretical perspective, I would assume that swappable batteries like those that Neo is working on right, would right. be easier to recycle simply because you can get it out of the car very easily. Um, but, you know, with regards to, you know, glue uh, is really hard to for a recycler to get around. Um, you know, I haven't really heard of any cell maker or automaker talking about using less glue in a battery. <laughs> the zinc uh, guys are are quick to say that, that they're that they don't use compounds, and so you know lead acid batteries are pretty easy to recycle. You just strip them apart, and they say zinc batteries are the same. You can just strip them apart and get almost you know almost one hundred percent of your materials back. That's one of the advantages the zinc people boast. And I just yeah, I don't have a sense of whether that's whether the market cares about, <laughs> about that yet or whether the market will care about it. And this is like, I don't know, this is a, I guess, a, a vague question, but just do you worry about the environmental, like every time I bring up batteries on the internet without fail, there's a person who comes along and says, oh, yes, but we're mining horrible things and polluting horrible things and the whole thing's an environmental disaster that everybody's ignoring and glossing over because everyone loves EVs. I would love for that to be wrong, but, I would, but I'm not super confident that it's wrong. Like, what's your general sense of, like, the environmental impact of this? Is that a big top of mind concern for you or for the industry? So it's definitely a huge growing interest for the industry, especially the upstream mining sector, um, because that's really where a lot of these concerns really come from. Cathode production can be electrified, which means that if you use solar, wind, power, you know, you, you don't have carbon emissions. Um, you know, the cell production facilities, you know, those are also, those require quite a bit of energy, but you, know, you can use uh, clean energy resources for that as well. Um, it's really the... Yeah, it's less about energy than the materials, really, that I'm talking about. It's just this mining and disposal of materials. Yeah, so the recycling... The recycling bit and the upstream mining bit is uh, those are the two parts that when somebody is talking about you know, sustainability and the lithium-ion battery value chain, those are the parts that I would think that they're talking about. Recycling, you know, we're seeing a lot of government support for this as well as automaker support um, because if you can get a higher quality material through a process that maybe you own. Right. So you're mining your own waste, right. basically. That's a, that's super attractive. Um, and from the upstream part, you know, we're talking about some of these lithium extraction technologies. You know, there, there are a lot of efforts there to make that uh, a lot more transparent and a lot more sustainable as well. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily, you know, throw out some of these concerns offhand, but um, I don't really think that they're super relevant to the conversation um, since there's, you know, the idea of 
sustainability and life cycle analysis and carbon emissions in the lithium ion battery value chain, um, ESG concerns. These are all things that, um, you know, the lithium ion battery industry is taking actually very seriously. And you think they're solvable on some on some time scale? There's no there's no problem. There's no solution for yet. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to talk your way around cobalt. Um, so the (laughs) solution there is just to get rid of the cobalt, um, or wait for recycling. Um, but aside from that, you know, there's no part of lithium ion battery, you know, supply chain is going to lead to the kind of disaster like the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico or the Exxon Valdez or, you know, any one of these oil, major oil spills that have had all these kinds of ecological long-term consequences. Yeah. I guess when you're, when you're calculating the environmental impact, you do have to sort of minus, uh, all the oil and gas impacts that you are avoiding, right? Which is huge. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say minus, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say that there's the lithium ion battery industry is perfect and that they don't really have to do anything in order to you know, satisfy that criteria. Um, I think there are changes that need to be addressed. Um, But I think that the conversation around, you know, lithium ion battery uh, and electric vehicles are just as bad as ICEs. You know, I think that's kind of a disingenuous argument. Mm. Okay. Um, I don't want to keep you all day. So just as a final topic, then let's, um, this is, this relates to the, to the supply chain too. sort of notoriously, even though we are on the, uh, you know, more or less everyone agrees at this point, the front end of a giant explosion of, of EVs uh, in the EV industry, the U S notoriously has virtually no domestic EV supply chain. We have virtually no uh, EVs manufactured here. The metals are imported. Almost all the parts are imported. Almost the whole supply chain is imported at this point. And this is something, you know, that lots of people are concerned about. They think, you know, in terms of the whole competing with China and, you know, jobs in a new growing industry, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, part of what Joe Biden's infrastructure proposal is about is trying to goose the creation of a U.S. EV supply chain, both for kind of materials and parts and for the EVs themselves. What's your take on that? Is that a, is that a doable thing? Is that something that we could stand up really quick or is it, are there structural reasons why it's particularly difficult or why it hasn't happened? I don't think there are really any structural reasons. Um, I think it's really about, well, maybe, maybe this is a structural reason, but I think it's more about making sure that our policies around clean energy technologies and electrification are well aligned at the local, state, and federal levels, and that um, you know those aren't going to change anytime soon. Part of the reason why we haven't seen some of these you know, industry players uh, flood to the U.S. market. Um, And, you know, while they they do um, have all of these facilities under construction in Europe is because, uh, you know, the U.S. has gone back and forth a few times on its EV policies. 
And, um, you know, President Trump did have uh, a lot of support, actually, for the upstream uh, minerals supply chains and uh, did sign some executive orders looking at the battery minerals supply chains and uh, the possibility of bringing some of those here. Right, because there's lithium and nickel here in Mm -hmm. the U.S., right? Yep. But, you know, some of those efforts were pretty undercut by um, his administration's, uh, you know, attitude against electric vehicles. And so that leads to some confusing signals for the industry. And uh, I think having, you know, a well-aligned, cohesive electric vehicle and clean energy industry policy um, would definitely... Uh, increase the confidence of both investors as well as industry players that the U.S. market can be relied upon. So that's that's one main aspect. Um, and the other main aspect is that uh, if you take a look at where these battery industries are and where the um, the minerals uh, operations are, you know those companies have all received huge amounts of government support. Um, and I don't necessarily know if the U.S. is really ready to commit that kind of um, government funding to battery manufacturing. Um, or, I mean, I guess we'll we'll see what the Loan Programs Office does um, at, a, at a DOE now. Um, but in the Obama years, um, in the latter Obama years and in the Trump times, um, you know, there was a lot of fear around being the next, you know, guilty of the next Solyndra. Um, <laughs> and that's really, you're not going to ever get anywhere if you're always going to be afraid of that kind of pretty minor failure. <laughs> and, you know, in some ways yes. expected, you're going to have some failures. It's not all going to be winners. I know the point of the program was to take risks. That was the whole, that's how it was designed and sold. That was yeah. the whole point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's definitely going to be a new solider. I mean, there's definitely going to be a bunch of failed EV companies and failed battery companies, and like, oh, absolutely, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Um, this is kind of what the U.S. is supposed to be very good at: is you know, wildly committing to insane ideas, and some of them panning out, um, but not all of them, and that's you know. There's a reason why we have such a healthy startup culture in the U.S. and why a lot of these U.S. battery startups are being acquired and attracting attention internationally from Europe and Asia. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of intellectual capital here. Um, it's really just about making sure that there's a reliable, steady market. Right. And that requires industrial policy of a size and scale that this country hasn't really has been kind of trending away from ever since Reagan you know that's what could one of the more interesting broader political stories going on right now is just Biden trying to revive industrial policy old school industrial policy of the kind that like China and Germany used to dominate uh, solar PV it will be interesting to see whether we're willing to do that well, thank you so much for this. There was one final question I had, and you may not have anything to to, <laughs> to say to it, but it's on my mind because I like to speculate about future utopias. Um, 
Some of the reports I've read about about lithium ion batteries, about the innovations possible once you get, you know, your solid state and your lithium metal and your various other advances, people are talking about like right now, prices are approaching $100 per kilowatt hour. Um, you know, people are saying we're going to hit that by whatever, 2023 or whatever, which used to be, as I understand it, considered basically impossible. <laughs> and now it's on the way. And I'm seeing reports talking about those numbers eventually getting down to like $50 kilowatt hour or 40 or even 30, which is mind boggling to me. <laughs> and one of the things that makes me think about is... Mostly we think about existing applications and sort of like, how do we make batteries for those? But I'm just wondering if you have a battery that is $30 a kilowatt hour, what could you do with that that we're not even doing with batteries yet? In other words, like what are other applications for energy storage that might open up if we end up with super, super cheap storage? Sure. I guess first, I would be very curious to see what kinds of assumptions are made on those $30 per kilowatt hour batteries. <laughs> I could tell you it has to do with fluorides and and conversion rather than intercalation and a bunch of other speculative stuff that is, I doubt it will hit 40 or 30, but even 50 or even like 70, even 100 is crazy. But like, once you're getting lower than that, you know, like, I'm just wondering, like, what other worlds of energy storage maybe just haven't occurred to us yet because we haven't had batteries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one application that we're seeing uh, quite a lot of momentum for is uh, marine vessels and electrifying um, the propulsion systems for marine vessels, um, particularly ferries are good um, in kind of the same ways that, you know, electric buses make a lot of sense pretty much everywhere. Um, you can predict where the vessel is going to go, you know, exactly when it's going to get there and you can charge it, um, you know, reliable times. Um, so that's one area. I think another area for some of these next generation batteries, you know, maybe solid state lithium metal anode isn't, uh, appropriate for an economy car. Like, I don't know, right. but it would definitely be appropriate for electric aviation and those types of, uh, you know, applications where weight and energy density mean even more than, um, right. than the mobility sector or the automotive right. sector. Right. Talk about energy density being prized up in the air is the most, <laughs> that's when you yes. most need it. Yes, exactly. And so some of these electric aircraft um, could definitely benefit from solid state batteries, both from a safety benefit, um, because you super do not want um, a battery. <laughs> you, you really, really don't. don't. <laughs> you you, you want to make sure, triple sure that that battery is very safe. <laughs> yeah, thermal runaway has a whole, a whole different uh, valence yeah. when you're thousands yeah. of feet up. So safety matters a lot more to the, to the aviation sector than, um, than even to the automotive sector and, uh, and energy density as well, as we both talked about. So those are really you know, some of the key markets that I would be most interested in for lithium ion batteries moving forward. Um, there is a lot of talk about, you know, medical devices and going the other way and, and looking at smaller and smaller. Smaller, yeah. yeah, right, right. Those applications are not really a cohesive group 
Um, they all have different requirements. Um, and that could be a way for some of these, you know, non-lithium, potentially zinc batteries. Um, you know, there are a lot of different battery options for those different kinds of devices. Well, so interesting. I've kept you, sorry, longer than I said I would. <laughs> I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Thank you so much for taking all this time and uh, for talking. Yeah, no problem. It was a pleasure. All right. See you, Chloe. Take care. <laughs>